In chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, we learn about a second beast that arises out of the earth and that deceives people into building an image to the first beast. Now, a lot of people have speculated as what this image is and how exactly it's going to fool people into worshiping this first beast and taking its mark. Today, we're going to look at what this image really is and why currently it is being built by the false prophet. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Tudor Alexander, and this is the Dance of Life podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. As usual, I very much appreciate you being with me. You know, these things are so important to discuss, especially because we are living in those final moments, I believe, those final years, perhaps. Who knows when the return of Christ will be, but ultimately we are living, I believe, in that final generation. If you've been with me throughout this end time series, then hopefully you will agree, because um, we really are in that 11th hour. But nonetheless, if you're just joining, we are halfway through this series, probably around that point, maybe a little more than halfway. We've been talking about a lot of big things. Today we're going to start diving into something called the image of the beast. And the image of the beast comes from Revelation 13. It's related to the second beast that comes out of the earth. And this second beast... Now, remember, beasts are kingdoms and powers and political systems. They're not people. But nonetheless, this beast, the second beast, works as a false prophet. It works as a false prophet. So the, the system that arises out of the earth, and we identified that system last episode. So go check it out if you missed that. Very good episode. A lot of great detail there for you to unquestionably identify who the second beast is. And Spoiler alert, it's the United States. So basically, the second beast is the United States. And we looked at that in a great detailed way. We looked at how the founding fathers were not really Christian. They Some of them claimed to be Christian, like Thomas Jefferson, but they ultimately rejected Christianity. They rejected the divinity of Christ. They rejected the Trinity. They rejected the preexistence of Christ. They rejected the sinfulness of man. You know, man can basically save himself. So all these things, they look like Christians, they were nice and clean cut, they were conservative, but ultimately they spoke like a dragon because they were Illuminati, Enlightenment era thinkers. And if you know anything about the Enlightenment, then it should come as no surprise. But ultimately, the founding fathers were not Christians. Uh, They had Luciferian ideals and, you know, secret society ideals. The Illuminati was formed around that time as well. And remember, everything we talked about in the last couple episodes, starting from the French Revolution, there was this dialectic between left and right, between this secularist, atheist, liberal side, and then the conservative side, which that dialectic didn't really exist for most of history. You only you always had monarchs and kingdoms, and it was everything was very ultra, you know, conservative in some sense, right? It was very nationalist. And so you had this dialectic start to emerge from the French Revolution between nationalism and conservatism and liberalism, left versus right right versus blue, you know, donkeys versus elephants, all this kind of stuff. And so there's a reason for that. And I've been drilling home at that reason over and over again, because the ultimate purpose is to bring people back to what the beast, the first beast, what the beast enjoyed, which is the 1260 years of ruling the world with an iron fist. Now, of course, the first beast is the papacy. And if that's news to you, then I highly recommend going and checking out previous episodes where we exposed Mystery Babylon. One of the easiest details that is the biggest giveaway is that Mystery Babylon, the woman who represents a church, sits on seven hills. 
right? Now, there's no church in history that fulfills that better, and in fact, there are no other options other than the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, who sits in Rome, and Rome is called the City of Seven Hills. So there's a lot of lot of stuff that was just a, you know, a cute little detail, but ultimately it's very important because it identifies who this beast system really is. And then you work backwards from there, and you truly see everything else falls in line. Of course, we, we looked at Daniel, we looked at all these other prophecies, and they all paint the same picture. It's the same system. But this system ruled the world for you know quite a long time. It ruled with an iron fist. And it had some problems later towards its rule. It had the Reformation. The Reformation was a grassroots movement. And people started to wake up to the reality like, oh my gosh, we are under this power. We are under this beast, this, this first beast. This is the papacy. And that was a really big problem for the papacy. So they went into damage control mode. They created the counter-reformation, which is still active, by the way, because it will be active until the Protestants merge back with the Mother Church. And that is happening. We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at a lot of that today, and we're going to look at a lot of that actually next time as well, because we're going to talk about the spiritual aspects of this whole image of the beast. The image of the beast is basically the healing of the wound of the papacy. Now, it's healing of the wound spiritually. The political wound was healed in 1929 with the Lateran Pact. In fact, we looked at a a tabloid from the San Francisco Chronicle where it literally said, healing the wound, (laughs) right? So they actually said it, you know, said the quiet part out loud, so to speak. So ultimately, the political side of the wound being healed, remember, the papacy received, seemed like it received a mortal wound in 1798. When the Pope was arrested, every you know the papacy was deemed you know, over. The, the Jesuits were banned as well during that time. All of this was just fakery to go underground, to seem like it was over, to reposition, to, to get into secret societies and all kinds of other things that we looked at. And that wound was healed politically in 1929 when the Pope was recognized again. They, they got their territories back. But spiritually... This whole dialectic between left and right to ping-pong people from one side to the other, it's its still going on. We're in the middle of that dialectic. And actually, we're, we're actually far past the middle because we are towards the end of it. We're towards the resolution where people will come back to the Mother Church, the great system that awaits us. The image of the beast that the false prophet is building, that the United States is building right now, is the woman riding the beast, which is going to be the final church-state union. Now, again, if all this sounds new to you, again, I highly recommend that you go see previous episodes because all these things, they're, they're so incredibly detailed. You, I mean, we're looking at history. We're looking at all these things, and it's impossible to fit it all into one episode. So I have to do some review a little bit, but ultimately, there's many things that I have to gloss over because there's just not enough time. So go check that out if this is news to you. But look, here's the deal. The second beast is the United States. We looked at that clearly last episode. We looked at all of the connections on how it came out of the earth, the the sea compared to the sea. The sea is a very populated area. The United States was a superpower. It exercised all the fo- power of the first beast as a superpower across the world, but it came out of nowhere. You had two horns. You know, we have vice president, and president. We have two parties. You know, there's there's a lot of looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. There's a lot of things that should raise an eyebrow at the very least at the very least, to do more investigation. And we did lots of investigation. We looked at the Statue of Liberty, how it was created by Freemasons, how really the Statue of Liberty, if you know anything about the occult, 
it's just a statue of Lucifer, the light bearer, bringing light to the world. And of course, it's the false light of reason and, you know, all these different things that basically man can save himself. And America was the false prophet that that was awarded to. And America is acting as a false prophet. So America is the second beast. And the question is, how is it fulfilling this role as a false prophet to shepherd people back to this final beast system that John saw, which is the woman riding the beast, which is really a woman, a church, riding or controlling a political system, which is basically the kings of the earth will give their power to this system. It'll be a final church-state union of some kind. One world religion, perhaps, a return to Christian nationalism. Who knows how exactly it's going to play out? But ultimately, this is the direction we're heading. So how is America, this is our question for today, how is America shepherding people into this direction. And if again, if you've heard this for the first time, it seems like well, that's impossible because America is the land of the free. We're the land of, you know, religious tolerance, of separation between church and state. How is that even possible? And again, if you know your history, you won't be surprised. But we're going to look at a lot of things political and cultural today. We're going to look at a lot of things that will challenge and shake your mind up if you believe that America is a land of religious tolerance or a land specifically of freedom or the separation between church and state. If you believe that that's the case, I will invite you to be shocked because that's not the case at all. America is not a land of separation between church and state at all. In fact, that line is getting blurrier and blurrier, blurrier every year. It's getting, and, and we're speeding that up. We're speeding that up quite a bit. So we're going to look at that today. But first, I want to talk really quick about what is an image, right? So we know that the false prophet in Revelation 13, which is not an individual, again, beasts are kingdoms and systems and political powers. But the system, which is the United States, is acting like a false prophet, meaning it's, it's doing these signs and wonders. It's getting people to build this image of the beast. So what does all this mean if we're talking in symbolic language? This is the thing. It's not talking about a a person who is going to fool people into building a giant statue and everybody's going to worship it. That is not at all what it's talking about. So we have to use our spiritual eyes. And so an image is a statue, right? In traditional speak, an image is a statue. And it in the Bible, when we had images of things, people believed that spirits inhabited those images. And so they were representations of the things that people couldn't see, like gods and you know, how they're supposed, to, they're supposed to look and so on. So an image is a representation. It's something that is constructed. So how the question is, how has religion and politics in the United States have merged and blended over the years to create a representation, a representation, a constructed system that is reminiscent of what? Well, this image in Revelation 13 is an image of the first beast. The first beast that ruled for 1260 years, and really if we count from Constantine when he united church and state, it's really this um, unity of church and state. It's a fascist, nationalist, authoritarian, religio-political system. This system existed for a very long time. And people forget that that system was the cause of the Crusades, the Inquisitions, the persecution of thousands upon the, who knows what the body count is. I mean, you know, Mother of Harlots is there for a reason. John gives her that name that is very appropriate 
And the more you study your history, the more you realize how true that is. But nevertheless, the mother of harlots. And so this system, to make a representation of this system, means that a political system, namely the United States, will usher in a image, a representation. Well, what's an image of the beast? It'll be a political system. It'll be another system. It'll be a new type of system. But really, it's an old system, if you get the meaning here. It'll be a Christian nationalist system where religion and politics are no longer separated. And that will be ushered in by the United States. That's the image of the beast. And the United States will work signs and wonders. We're going to look at how that is happening. We're going to look at the passion of the Christ. We're going to look at the chosen. We're going to look at all these different signs and wonders that are making people marvel after the first beast and say, wow, Catholicism is actually really amazing. It's really good. You have Protestants wanting to come back to the mother church. They're marveling after the Pope. It's, it's all happening, folks. You have to realize that this is the direction life is moving. It's not about Israel. It's not what the Jews are doing with the third temple. This is all a distraction. In fact, it's probably part of the plan to bring in a false Christ. But either way, it's a distraction. The real enemy, the real Antichrist power is the papacy. And of course, their militant wing, which is the Jesuits. But this is what history and scripture testify of. So today we're going to focus on the political, cultural aspects of this system that's being built right now. We're not completed with it, but it's coming. And again, after today, I hope you will see more clearly much more clearly that this is the truth. And again, if you've heard this for the first time, it's like, how is this possible? You'll see that it's possible. Now, we're not going to look at the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is going to be a future episode. So the the false prophet basically makes people build the image. He deceives them into worshiping through this image, worshiping the first beast. And the image is given life. Now, again, an image, in this case, this is a political system. It's a government. It's a type of government. It's a template that the world will adopt following the United States creating it. And this system will have life to be able to speak. What does that mean? That means a system speaks through its laws. It legislates. What's it going to legislate? It's going to legislate that people should take the mark of the beast or they will be killed or you know they can't buy or sell. So this system that the United States will usher in which is a Christian nationalist system type of, it's a representation. It's a copy, for lack of a better word. It's a copy of the previous previous religio-political system that dominated the world for over a thousand years. This system is coming back. And when it does, it's going to make laws that demand worship because there's going to be no more separation between church and state. People are going to want the unification of church and state. And in that kind of mental climate, It'll seem good and right to worship the beast, to take its mark. But if you're aware and you're awake and you know the truth, you're going to be an outcast. You will be legislated against. You'll be told you're going to die or you're not going to buy or sell anything. So this is the future we're going to. But we're not talking about the mark today because that's a whole nother can of worms, obviously. But it is part of this. So keep that in mind for future episodes. But we are talking about how religion and politics have joined, and they're joining more and more because the, the line is getting blurrier every day. It really is. We're going to talk about the false signs and wonders that the second beast has created. Again, remember, everything's in context of systems and political powers. 
America has created many, many things like televangelism, the Word of Faith Prosperity Movement, the hyper-charismatic movement has really flourished here. Of course, the charismatic movement, all these things tie back to the Catholic Church in one way or another, but the charismatic movement was started in the 60s by the Catholic Church as a way to bridge back into the Protestants to bridge them back into the Mother Church. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. But the hyper-charismatic movement, mega-churches, the NAR movement, if you know anything about that, um, New Apostolic Reformation, false revivals and manifestations, experiences of all kinds of things, uh, the commercialization and pop-culturalization of Christianity. You have all these TikTok prophets now. Everybody's on TikTok talking about the rapture. and I mean, deception is just at an all-time high. It's really crazy. Of course, you also have the New Age movement, New Thought, progressive Christianity. All these things have been created in America. America is the home of all of these things. These are false signs and wonders that people are marveling after and feeling like, gosh, this is just so amazing. And ultimately, what are they doing? They're going to be used. It's not obvious yet. It is obvious if you know your history and if you've studied these things, but it's not terribly obvious. But these things will be used by the false prophet, which is the United States, to shepherd people back into the mother church. So they're bringing in what? They're bringing in false gospels, false converts, false teachers. How many false teachers are there today with with all the stuff I just mentioned? Countless, really. These leaders are all usually involved in secret society, Freemasonry. Billy Graham was a Freemason a high-ranking one. So ask yourself this. I mean, now look, we know that God will use all things for the good for those he's chosen to save. So I'm not commenting on his impact. I'm saying Billy Graham was a Freemason. And the higher you go in Freemasonry, at the very top you pledge allegiance to Lucifer. You realize that their God is not God of the Bible, as you so think when you first join them. It's Lucifer. And so the question is, who are these people really? Which side are they on, right? And so ultimately, you have to remember that these secret societies are in the background. Everybody in a position of power or fame is not there because of their merit. They're there because of they're part of the club. It doesn't matter if they're a preacher like Joel Olstein, or they're a basketball player like LeBron James. It's all one big club, and you and I are not in it. Thank God, because there's a big price to pay for that. By the way, these people are shepherding people back into unity with the beast one way or another. They're creating a culture and an environment and a mindset that is ready for the adoption of a one world religion through all the things that I mentioned. And again, if this seems hazy, you're not making the connection, just stick with me. You'll see very clearly how all these things will actually serve the beast because they are preparing a culture and a template. This is what the image of the beast is. The image of the beast is being constructed. Is being constructed. Is being constructed so that people have a culture and a mindset and a political system that is ready to adopt a religio-political unification where the Pope is the authority and that will seem like a good thing. All these things are contributing to that. That's what this is about. So, remember that an image is a representation Okay, and again, the question is, how is that going to happen in the United States when the United States has a separation between church and state? Well, remember that the dialectic pattern has always been about create the opposite of what you want, so it pushes people in that direction. The whole point of the French Revolution and the art of war and all these things that we talked about in a previous episode 
was so that we would bring these dialectics to the foreground of people's minds. Left versus right, left versus right, communism versus nationalism. And of course, World War II, who won? The communists won, the dark side won. And we've been under that reality ever since. And that reality is now shifting back to the light. The dark to the light. The black hats to the white hats. The white hats are in control. Yeah, that's right, they are in control. Who wears a white hat? Who's the top person who wears a white hat? It's the Pope. So you have to wake up from these things because ultimately this stuff is a deception. These narratives about the good guys in government and the military that want to save you, and there's nobody that's coming to save you other than Jesus Christ. There's only one good guy in history, and he died for your sins. So I hope that you accept the truth because there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. So ultimately, all these things are preparing the world for a golden age, a light world order, the communist, global cabal, all these things that you hear on various news channels, you know, the deep state, you know, whatever. This is just the big bag boogeyman, big bad boogeyman designed to push you and push you and push you into the opposite direction. What is the opposite of atheism and communism and all this darkness? The opposite on a worldly scale not on a biblical scale, because God has no duality. God is just truth. But the devil uses duality to push you and ping-pong you into various worldly solutions. So on a worldly level, the opposite of the dark, communist, globalist, evil people is the light, clean-cut, conservative, you know, Christian nationalists. That's who the opposite is. And we got to fight this satanic deep state and bring order to the world, and and law, and the rule of law, and all these things that you hear, these buzzwords. Do you realize, do you see the deception? Do you realize the ping pong game? And the people who are going to be deceived next are the patriots. The people who were deceived first were the liberals, obviously. All the people who are totally liberal, they were totally deceived by their own side. But guess what? Do you think you're immune if you're on the right side? Absolutely not. The Bible says don't swerve to the right or to the left many times. That's by design, because the devil always uses duality to push you into various extremes. And the extreme that's coming on the horizon is the deception. The one that's currently right now with all this deep, dark, deep state that everybody's finding out about, do you think that that they would play their hand and, and you would find out about it on the internet? All these hundreds of years of secrecy, nobody knew a thing, and if they did, they were killed, basically. Now suddenly it's out in the open. Oh my gosh, everybody's finding out where it's a great awakening. Everybody's waking up. Do you think that's what really is happening? I beg to differ. It's a controlled revelation of information designed to move you into a desired outcome. The truth is in the Bible. It's not on YouTube. It's not in BitChute. It's not from all these pundits that are talking about the White Hats in control. These people are either deceived or they themselves are agents of the enemy. So you have to use discernment. But I want to talk first about this, this carrot, which is part of this futurist eschatology. Remember, futurism was a tool that the Jesuits used to take attention off the papacy. What is futurism? If you've never heard that term before, it's a way to interpret biblical end times events in a future-related way. So, for example, the Antichrist is going to walk into the temple and proclaim himself to be God. You can interpret that as a future thing where the Jews are building a temple, physical temple, and some charming individual is going to walk in there and proclaim himself to be God. 
Or you can interpret that as the way the apostles and Jesus taught that the temple is his body. It's the fellowship that we have with other believers. It's the church. Now, who walked into that church and proclaimed himself to be that? Well, it was the papacy, the little horn power. That's already happened. It's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. But you see, that's a problem if you're the papacy. You don't want people to believe that. So you have to make them think, oh, well, you know, it's, it's actually read in a physical way, a literal way. The devil cannot help himself. He has to always bring your attention to the physical things in the world. Nothing that is spiritual, that is symbolic, is, is that what the devil's going to do. He's always going to bring you to the physical world, to the fleshly way of interpreting things. And so futurism, we've talked about futurism throughout this series. So again, if this is the first time you're joining us, check out some of those previous episodes because futurism is false. There's a lot of parts of futurism that are just very unbiblical. And ultimately, they set you up for the greatest deception, which is a possible golden age, possible false return of Christ, possible, you know, church-state union. All these things that are happening, it's all tied to futurism and this this belief that Jesus has to rule in Jerusalem for a thousand years. It's going to be a golden age. Oh my gosh, it's going to be great. And the enemies are going to be put under his feet. Well, who's going to be the enemy if there's a false Christ? It's going to be you if you know the truth. See how this works? But part of the futurist eschatology, so I digress, the part of the future, part of the futurist eschatology is this idea that the image of the beast might be AI, artificial intelligence. So there, you know, there's so many articles and I want to take a look at them because these things are deceptions. They're, again, just carrots. Okay, here we go. Let's take a look at some of these headlines. I mean, these are just a few, but could AI become God's new voice? Chat GPT, AGI, and the evolution of intelligence. I'm not going to read too much on this one. This is just a Reddit forum, but it's like, you know, again, people are worried that AI is going to take over the world and it's, it's going to be, you know, this thing and people are going to worship. The radical movement to worship AI as a new God. That is to say that there isn't a place for AI in religion. Raikou believes that they need to be treated as the tools they are rather than deities we might want them to be. So again, it's this, this idea that, oh, the, the AI is going to be this, this thing that we worship. And so people say, oh, this is the image of the beast. And it's, this is this Bible prophecy being fulfilled. CBN. Let's see what they say. World Economic Forum contributor says AI could rewrite the Bible, create correct religions. This is, of course... Yuval Noah Harari, which is the poster boy for their futurist eschatology, known for being a contributor and speaker of the World Economic Forum, is promoting the idea that AI will be able to generate a new globally acceptable religious book. Now, okay, let, let's talk about this for a second because there, there's just so much here. And again, it's you cannot go with what the obvious is. Yuval Noah Harari is, is the poster boy for the WEF, and he's so obviously antichrist. He's so obviously antichrist. I'm not saying he's the antichrist. I'm saying he's antichrist, meaning as an adjective, not a noun. The apostle John defines antichrist as an adjective, as in people who reject Christ, who reject the Christ as the Messiah. There's several definitions, but basically anybody who's Fighting against Christ is Antichrist. There is no the Antichrist in the Bible. There's a little horn power. There's a first beast. All these things are political systems. So this is another sleight of hand where futurist eschatology teaches you that there's a physical person. There's an Antichrist that's coming. And of course, 
because they created that false prophecy, they have to fulfill their false prophecy by propping up these various people who are obviously evil in your face. You, you've all know Harari. He's a homosexual. He's all about you know AI and transhumanism. He, he he's blaspheming God, saying all these things like, "Oh, we could rewrite the Bible. We don't need God." And all these things. It's it's obvious. Like if you have eyes to see, and again, if you understand this whole dialectic stuff, it is so obvious that this is the evil that they're shoving in your face. Why? Why are they doing it? Because they want you to be repulsed by it, which you should be. And move to the opposite direction. Like, no, I'm hanging on to my Bible. I'm hanging on to my religion. I want good old family values back. I, you know what? Maybe we should get rid of the separation between church and stakes. I don't want Yoval Noah Harari to be, you know, to, to have more of these types of people in our world. Do you see what's going on here? Like, this guy is so obviously evil. It's almost like it's scripted what he's saying. And I'm sure it is to some degree. But it's so obviously in your face, this whole AI thing. And it's, again, it's designed to make people focus on fleshly, worldly things. AI is not the image of the beast. Absolutely, you see holograms and all kinds of things. And, of course, man will always tend towards idolatry. You know, I used to go to EDM festivals a long time ago. And nowadays, they have holograms. Like, literally, I, I look back at some of these things. I'm like, wow, I never realized how pagan all of this stuff is you literally have just a giant altar where the dj is the priest and people are just bowing down literally to it to to trance music and now you have holograms and you know basically people are just like wandering after these idols these digital idols i mean nothing is new under the sun just like the book of ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun so for sure that exists, but AI is not the image of the beast that people are going to bow down to. Now, AI will probably be used by the image. Remember, the image is a government. It's a template. It's a system that will be adopted by the world, and it will start in the United States. And of course, AI will be used to enforce the mark of the beast. It will be used to enforce the buying or selling because there's going to be a digital currency. It's going to track everything. It's going to have a probably a learning algorithm to see how you speak and what you believe and eventually cast you out. So, of course, AI will be part of it. But AI, as the image of the beast, is designed, again, to take your attention off of what's really happening. All these things are designed to make you focus on the physical world rather than on the invisible things that are not happening, which is the political systems, the dialectics, the deception of left versus right, and, and the movements between these two. This is what's really to be paying attention to. And if you know your history, you know what to pay attention to. But most people do not know their history. They don't look at history. They just go for the obvious. Oh, no, Yuva Noah Harari. Ironic that his middle name is Noah, but, you know, this guy's, oh, he's so evil, you know, and he must be the Antichrist. Or maybe he's the false prophet because he's, you know, doing all these signs and wonders with technology. Like, really? That's not what the Bible's talking about. And again, this is exactly what they want. They want all these people to be deceived and talking about the wrong things because as long as they're talking about the wrong things, then nobody will figure out the truth. So look, just like the vax, just like the chip, the mark is, it's not something physical, okay? The antichrist is an adjective. Antichrist is adjective. It's not a noun. There is no the antichrist in the Bible. There's no such mention. There's son of perdition, but the son of perdition is only used for Judas, and Judas was what? 
Judas was the treasurer. He was in charge of the money, and he was very close to Christ. He was, quote-unquote, a believer. He wasn't a genuine believer, but he was part of the fold. Who fits that bill perfectly? The Pope. The Pope is the Judas. He's the son of perdition. Now, who knows what Pope it's going to be when all this goes down, but either way, the Pope is in charge of the money. The Vatican is the wealthiest organization on the earth. And, of course, they profess to be close to Christ, but ultimately, they're giving him the kiss of betrayal. So, transhumanism is real, okay? The people are trying to hack their body. There are a lot of crazies in transhumanism that are very much intent on bridging man and machine. Absolutely. Ray Kurzweil is one of them. This Yoval Noah, I can't pronounce his name, my goodness. The, The guy I just mentioned. But anyway, this is very real. Just like communism is real. But again, just because it's real doesn't mean it's the ultimate truth. It's part of the dialectic. Transhumanism is part of the dialectic to push you back to good old family values. Now, who is going to be there waiting with their arms wide open to be the moral authority of those good family values and the common good? It's going to be the Pope. So that's what you have to keep your mind on. Um, You know, idolatry has always been a problem, like I said, for man, but beasts are systems. An image is not something as simple as some robot coming to life and people are going to worship it. That's just nonsense. It's not what's going to happen. I will talk about this in a future episode with the mark, but the mark is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual reality. Everything in the Bible, especially the end times, is spiritual. It's about opening your eyes and seeing with spiritual eyes. And that's why you have to Rely on the Holy Spirit, because otherwise, the way that you interpret the Bible is through fleshly eyes. The flesh is of no use at all, and we see things literally and physically. We don't see the hidden things. And you can see that plainly in in these futurist eschatology. Everything is literal. Everything is physical. The the mark is barcode, or it's a jib-jab, or it's a chip they're going to put under your skin. That's none of those things. You cannot lose your salvation from something physical that happens to you. If they force you down and put a chip in your arm, you're not going to lose your salvation. However, if there will be some test of obedience where you either obey the truth or you obey the Catholic Church and you pick to obey the Catholic Church because you want to feel comfortable, you don't want to lose your privileges of buying and selling in society, that will be the mark. I don't know what the mark is. I have some theories and we'll talk about those in a future episode. There's definitely some strong candidates. And we'll talk about that. But ultimately, it's not a physical thing. It will be enforced with physical things, just like the image of the beast, the system that's being built, will incorporate uh, artificial intelligence. Now, here's another thing to think about with AI. Because I wanted to mention this earlier. AI, as, as a tool, right now, is being... Again, it's just... If you understand dialectics, man, this stuff is just so obvious. Everything they do is to, is designed to like be an extreme so that you get pushed in the opposite direction. There is so much nonsense going on with all these chat GPTs and AI that literally they're doing it on purpose to flood the market with confusion. Now, what does that cause? What does confusion cause? Oh, chat GPT is now making videos for people and you can't tell who's real and who's not. Or, you know, people are using AI to do this or to hack that. So all this confusion is on purpose. It is a problem-reaction-solution. The problem is confusion because of AI. The reaction is, my gosh, we can't tell who's who. 
and AI is taking over and we need we need regulation. The solution is regulation, is a digital ID. We need to know who you are before you post something on Facebook, before you post something on YouTube. We need to know, you know, when you're buying something online because it might just be an AI. Do you see where this is going? AI is not the big bad boogeyman or the image of the piece. AI is designed to push you into the desired outcome, which is, again, a one-world system that is unified under religion and politics and that will enforce its beliefs. You can't enforce beliefs unless you have control over the money supply. The only way to do that is digitally. And you can't stop people from buying and selling. Totally cut them off from society unless there's a way to create a digital persona where you have control over it at any point in time, and you're basically playing God. That's what they're trying to do through this digital world, this metaverse through, you know, all the crap that's coming out from all these different things. So ultimately, these are just problem-reaction-solution. AI is not the image of the beast. So that's, that's the lesson for today. The image of the beast is representation of something. It's a creation that resembles the first beast. What was the first beast? It was a church-state union. The image of the beast will be another church-state union, but it's going to represent the first beast. And that image will be adopted by the world. It'll be a template. It's going to start in the United States. It'll be adopted by the world as a Christian nationalist type of system because the, um, the United States will do false signs and wonders and convince the world this is a good thing. See, it's working in the U.S. We're back to a Christian nation. We've conquered the deep state. We've conquered the globalists. And look at us. We're prospering. You should do that too. And then everybody will give their power to the beast. So remember this looks like a lamb. This, this false prophet looks like a lamb, which is Christianity and speaks like a dragon. The system that's coming is being put on by a power that seems like it's on your side. It seems Christian and good and clean cut and conservative, but in reality, it's actually evil. And so this is the thing. This is why it's going to be so tricky to discern because most people are looking for fleshly salvation. They think that good politicians, a constitution, clean cut conservatives who are speaking the truth, those people are going to save you. No, they're not. They're all, they're all in on the club. And ultimately, some of them are deceived and some of them are willing participants, but ultimately, they're all part of it. So don't put your hopes in those things. So how do we get to this point if there's separation between church and state? How, how can we possibly get to this union of church and state? How is America going to do this when America is literally like the place where separation in church and state was, you know, born, so to speak, right? Well... My answer to you is that religion and politics are not as separate as you may think. And we're going to look at a ton of articles for that. But remember that the wound for the papacy healed physically and politically in 1929. All the territories were returned. The Pope was recognized again. And the wound was healed from 1798. But the spiritual wound was not healed. The spiritual wound is being healed and it will only be healed when there's a one world religion again when the papacy is back in control and the kings of the earth give their power to that woman riding the beast. This is what the Bible says. We know the woman sits on seven hills, so the kings of the earth will give their power to the papacy and the United States will help bring about that final system of the woman, the church, 
riding or controlling the beast, which is this political system that's reminiscent of, again, just the first thousand plus years of history after Christ, where it ruled with an iron fist. So let's take a look at how politics and religion are not as separate as people think they are. Okay, so we have an article here, The Holy Alliance, Ronald Reagan and John Paul II. Let's take a look. Faced with military crackdown in Poland, Ronald Reagan and John Paul secretly joined forces to keep the Solidarity Union alive. They hoped not only to to pressure Warsaw, but to free all of Eastern Europe. This article is from 1992, so it's a little while ago, but important to understand. So we remember from the last episode that the Pope is the ultimate bridge builder, the Pontifex Maximus, the bridge ultimately between heaven and earth. That's what that really means. But he's the bridge builder. He's the great peacemaker. He's with everybody around the world, always both sides of the spectrum. He's he's just, oh, everybody loves the Pope. He's the, the peacemaker. So he's very involved in politics. And the question is, why? Shouldn't he be involved with the gospel? But here's a picture of the Pope with uh, George Bush, he gets the Medal of Freedom. So that's interesting. There's a political award to a religious leader. And, you know, of course, you have all these different pictures of the Pope with presidents, but how to get past political dogma this is the name of the article. But you have this picture, which I love. Basically, you have the Sistine Chapel, I believe, and the uh, U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. And you literally, you see like, the image of the beast right here. I mean, the, the United States has created this system. Remember, the the second beast has all the power of the first beast. The U.S. has been a world power since it came up. I mean, it's been basically the superpower. Of course, it seems like that's changing, but it'll come back in power, and it's going to convince the world to worship the beast because within the U.S. is being built this image. And look clearly at the architecture. This is the same kind of stuff. The Sistine Chapel and the Capitol building inside, they have very similar art, similar architecture. They have both have obelisks. You know, all kinds of stuff that, again, points to this idea of an image of the beast, a representation. Look at these obelisks. This is the Sistine Chapel. And if you are listening to this, then just look it up. I mean, just look up Sistine Chapel and compare it to the to the Capitol building. You have this, like, frescoes and these different arts and... Again, it's it's why is there this similarity between the Vatican architecture and, and the way the Vatican is and Washington, D.C.? That's just very interesting to me. It should be interesting to you, too. Look at these obelisks, these giant obelisks. I mean, it's the same stuff. This is the image of the beast being constructed as we speak. And again, we're not there yet, 100%, but we are moving on our way. Now, this is the uh, Knights of Columbus. I love this one. If you know anything about the Knights of Columbus, they're all over in politics. Let's read a little bit about their rules. Now, I actually had to look up this website in the Wayback Machine because they deleted it. So that's interesting. I don't know if that was for one reason or another, but here's what it says. And it's funny, they have this image, this image of, you know, like two streets crossing, and it's religion and politics. This is literally on the Knights of Columbus website. There's a picture, there's a clip art or whatever picture of two street signs that are intersecting as religion and politics. So right away, that's a red flag. As Catholics and as Knights of Columbus, each of us is called to faithful citizenship. Really? That's not what the gospel calls you to. To live out our Catholic faith in our public lives as well as our private lives. But how do you do this, especially when representing yourself as a knight on social media? 
is not always clear. When in doubt, follow these guidelines. Talk about the issues, not the candidates. It is very important that your council's official Facebook page never endorse one specific candidate or party. Instead, instead, share information about the pro-life movement and issues that Catholics care about when they go to the polls. Separate your candidacy from your being a knight. If you are running for your own city council, state legislature, or national office, you cannot campaign as a member of the Knights of Columbus on social media or offline. Of course, we don't want people to be Googling Knights of Columbus to understand where they come from and what they're after. I mean, this is... If you know if you know anything about secret societies, guys, and, and the history of whatever, history of all things, I guess, but the Knights of Columbus, they're just another order, just like the Rosicrucians, just like the Freemasons, the Illuminati. All these people are just various brotherly occult orders. Of course, on the surface, they, they say one thing and they, they talk about things. But you go through various orders of initiation and the people at the very inner circle believe very differently than the people on the outer circle are told. You have to understand that. Christ never said anything in secret. Instead, he said that he said nothing in secret. Christ was never about having secret orders and brother brotherhoods with handshakes. You know, the apostles didn't have secret handshakes. Everything was out in the open because the gospel doesn't need to be kept secret. And of course... We were never called by the Bible to be involved in politics. This is a deception, a very big one, that that you have this duty to be involved in politics and change political systems through a Christian lens. This is the, the lamb that speaks like a dragon. This is what Constantine was deceived by. If you remember the Battle of Midvian Bridge? We talked about that with Constantine and how he basically got this spiritual revelation from, wasn't the Holy Spirit, that he needed to mix Christianity with government. And all the emperors followed in that until Justinian, and where in Justinian basically they thought themselves to be God and they officialized the papacy. So all this stuff doesn't come from God. God never asked us to unify church and state. God never asked us to be institutionalized. The body of Christ is a decentralized thing. It always was, because God is the center and God is everywhere. And so all this push to be involved in government, and again, a lot of people in politics, you can look it up for yourself, they are members of the Knights of Columbus. There's a lot of Catholics in the Supreme Court, in the Senate, in the House, and many of them are members of the Knights of Columbus. And so you wonder from something even as public as this, what is the angle, right? So Catholics, what do they believe? Well, they believe, as you will see over and over again, that the unification of church and state is a good thing. And they are the ones who are pushing these things and in positions of control. But moving on, here's the moral majority from uh, Wikipedia. Now, this is an interesting thing that happened in the 80s, but let's read about it. Moral majority was an American political organization associated with the Christian right and the Republican Party. It was founded in 1979 by Baptist minister Jerry Falwell, senior and associates, and dissolved in the late 1980s. It played a key role in the mobilization of conservative Christians as a political force, and particularly in the Republican presidential victories throughout the 1980s. Isn't that interesting? Even more interesting is what he says towards the end. Disbanding the moral majority in 1989 in Las Vegas, Falwell declared, Our goal has been achieved. The religious right is solidly in place and religious conservatives in America are now in for the duration. 
Interesting. In for what duration towards what, I wonder? Could that be the duration of building this one world system of Christian nationalism that the Bible foretells? I think so. And I think that this is obvious from things like this, that it doesn't matter if you're Protestant, or I should say that you say you're Protestant, or Catholic, or whatever else, because ultimately what controls things are secret societies. All these things began a long time ago, and they were a way to control from the background by having the illusion of competition in the foreground. It seems like Baptists are against Catholics, but in reality, all these people are secret society members, and they bring and they work the same agenda to bring the world back to the beast. This is Church Militant, and this is a website for an organization. 220,000 people like it on Facebook. And let's see what their mission is of the Church Militant. The mission the Holy Catholic Church, the Universal Church, is divided into three supernatural missions. The Church Militant, the Church Suffering, the Church Triumphant. Okay. The Church Suffering comprises the souls of the righteous suffering in purgatory as they are purified for heaven. This is not a biblical teaching whatsoever. There's no purgatory. The church triumphant comprises the souls of the saints who have been glorified in heaven. Okay, people don't go to heaven, they wait the resurrection, but moving on. The church militant comprises the souls on earth engaged in battle against the forces of evil. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? I wonder how we define who is evil. We are the church militant. It's an interesting way. The Church Militant, Ecclesia Militants, nice little Latin phrasing there for you, is the Christian militia, <laughs> really. The Church Militant does battle against sin, the devil, and the demonic rulers of darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Really, I wonder if they realize that the highest wickedness is in the Pope. Christians are born for combat, Pope Leo XIII. Interesting. Now, if you look at this document, we'll take, a, we'll take a look at this document where this is quoted from, Christians are born for combat. It's from something called Sepiente Christiane. It's a Latin, one of the encyclicals probably. But really quick, let's read this. Under the patronage of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Michael, the Archangel, the mission of the church militant is to promote the faith given to humanity by Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Messiah. Okay, well, that's not Catholicism, so wonder what they're promoting. This faith is the only... Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, led by the successor to St. Peter, Pope Francis. So, this faith is the one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. So, they're mixing truth with lies. We saw that from many sources in the previous time. These people believe that if you reject the church, you reject salvation. There's no salvation outside of the church. But wait a minute. Didn't Christ say that there's no salvation outside of him? So why is it now the church? You see how this little sleight of hand happens so easily. And it seems, again, from all the words here, oh my gosh, they're fighting against evil, against darkness. What a noble calling. But yet, you are evil if you reject the church, if you reject the Pope, if you reject transubstantiation, if you reject Mary as the co-redemptrix, all these pagan things that we talked about with Babylon. Guess who's going to be the evil that these people are fighting against? Guess who's going to be the sinners? just like it was in the Inquisition, just like it was in all those thousands of people that got slaughtered by the religio-political system over thousands of years. Nothing changes. History repeats itself, guys. It really does. But these people are fanatics, and they are restrained because the image of the beast hasn't been built yet. Do you see the point here? 
and why this is very serious. The image of the beast has not been built. So, of course, they can't come out and start calling for people to be executed. But let's say it comes to that point, and maybe there's even a false Christ on the earth, a Satan is masquerading as Jesus. And you know the truth, and you say, I am not going to bow down and worship this false Christ. You are going to be seen as the demon. You are going to be seen as the evil one, as the one that needs to be destroyed and killed. So this is what it's all leading to. Again, you got to read the writing on the wall. But let's look at this Sapiente Christiani, the Pope Leo XIII, where he quoted, you know, his quote that Christians are born for combat. There's a nice little quote in here. And it says, The office indeed of preaching, that is of teaching, lies by divine right in the province of the pastors, namely of the bishops whom the Holy Spirit has placed to rule the church of God. It belongs above all to the Roman pontiff, vicar of Jesus Christ. There it is again, the vicar of Christ we talked about. Established as head of the universal church, teacher of all that pertains to morals and faith. This is what I wanted to get to. Teacher of all that pertains to morals and faith. Who is going to be the moral authority that is going to shepherd people into a one world religion? When you reject this big, bad, deep state and you want the worldly solution of, oh, we got to get back to nationalism, we got to get back to freedom. We got to get back to good old family values. And, you know, we got to put the Bible in schools. We got to do all these things, which, again, they seem good. They really do. But who is going to be the moral authority that governs how these things are done? Well, they just told you straight from the horse's mouth or from the snake's mouth. The teacher of all that pertains to morals and faith, the Pope is going to tell you what is good and what is evil. And that's the reality that's coming. So this is, this is, these are all political people that are fanatics about politics and fanatical about bringing religion into politics and influencing policy. Let's keep going. Yee's Trump dinner is a high point for Catholic nationalist influence campaign. This is a dinner with uh, Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Of course, he's a right-wing podcaster who's very popular and... Catholic nationalist. But in the days after his recent dinner with former President Donald Trump, the rapper Yee, formerly known as Kanye West, reflected on the experience in a video posted to Twitter. Speaking to an associate, Yee said his own exchanges with Trump were tense. But as they dined, he said the former president was practically glowing about someone else at the table. Nick Fuentes, the white Christian nationalist whom he had brought with him to Mar-a-Lago. So Trump was glowing about the white Christian nationalist Nick Fuentes. Isn't that interesting? And of course, you know that Trump was educated by Jesuits and he's put on by Jesuits. I mean, look, these people, there are no good guys. There's always, there's left and there's right. Don't make the choice. The Bible says don't swerve to the left or right. Keep the narrow road. Focus your eyes on Christ and the Bible and the gospel. Nobody is coming to save you. These people are just two sides of the same devil coin. The right side is the false light, and the left side is the dark. The dark scares you and pushes you and hurts you, so you want the light. It's good cop, bad cop, and that's what's happening here. But this is, look, people are meeting behind closed doors talking about Christian nationalism. Look, you, if you know your history, and this may be a tangent, there are a lot of similarities between Hitler and Trump. There really are. And I say that 
just as a matter of fact statement. I'm not saying it to insult anybody. I'm just saying it as a matter of fact statement. Hitler was very charismatic and he came at a time when there was a lot of quote unquote dark communism in Germany. And he was put on by the Jesuits, by the papacy. He had a very good relationship with the Pope as the light side that needed to oppose the dark. And he lost, right? But there's a lot of similarities between what Hitler did and how he talked and how he basically was all about the country, we the people, all these things, and Trump. And if you know your history, you will see that clearly and not take offense to it. Because ultimately, this is the same thing happening again, except this time it's going to be the light side that wins. So you got to know your history. You really do. Pastors for Trump announced campaign to get former president reelected. Really? What do pastors have to do with re-election of a president? I mean, you know, it's just, it's so crazy to read these things, but it, it, there's so many of them. Uh, the rise of the religious left. There's so many, I mean, the president-elect Re- Reverend Senator Harold, the president-elect and Reverend Senator Harold, the arrival of a new era of religiosity in American politics. Really? That's interesting. This is from 2021. American Christianity is and has always been a broad church. Sure it has. The same week that a band of Christian nationalists knelt and prayed before storming the Capitol building, shouting to a journalist with unintended irony, get the hell out of my way, a black Baptist preacher was elected on a left-wing platform to the U.S. Senate. The same year that the Democrats treated a Supreme Court nominee as a danger to democracy on account of her Catholic faith, there it is again, I told you there's a lot of Catholics on the Supreme Court, they elected the second Catholic president in U.S. history. So this article is titled, The Rise of the Religious Left. And as you can see just from this introductory paragraph, that what's it saying? Well, America, you know, we're, we're really actually very religious. You know, look, we got religion on both sides. We got Baptists here doing leftist stuff. We got... You know, Catholics here doing right stuff. You know, it's just, we're just a broad church. We all worship the same God, right? You know, let's, church is part of who we are. Institutionalized church. Do you see where this is going? I hope you are starting to see where this is going. Let's look at another one. Famous Shriners and members of, I mean, first off, let me, let me say this. The Shriners we're going to talk about in a future episode. But if you are a Shriner that is a top level Illuminati Freemason initiate. And these people swear an oath to Allah. And if you know anything about Allah, it's really just another name for Satan. Satan masquerades as many, many different gods and goddesses because God is one, so he has to do the opposite. And of course, he will try to unify the world under himself in these final days. But all these different gods, there's there's just names for Satan. Okay, and Shriners are this Arabic order that swears allegiance to Allah at the highest levels. And you have to ask yourself, why are these people part of such organizations? And also, why are they calling themselves Christian if this is the case? So somebody is lying is the is the question here. But look, look at this. We're just going to go through a few of these. There's so many. I'm going to cite all these sources as usual in the description of this episode. But Franklin Roosevelt, Buzz Aldrin... Clark Gable, all these people were Shriners, John Wayne, uh, if I can get rid of these ads, Harry S. Truman, Harry Houdini, George Cohen, Ernest Borgen, Gerald Ford, Gus Grissom, 
Some of these are senators. Warren, Warren G. Harding. I mean, there's just so... Thurgood Marshall. Gordon Cooper, another astronaut. There's just so many. Johnny Cash, Count Basie, Glenn Ford, Will Rogers. All the people in history that were ever famous. Again, it's one big club and you ain't in it, man. You know, I mean, just look at these people. Nat King Cole, Barry Goldwater Jr. It's, it's all Douglas MacArthur. All these people are Shriners. And we will look at the Shriners, but if you know anything about the Shriners, this should be a a red flag. Shriners are very religious. Now, all these people in political situations, they're all very, very religious. They're very, very institutionalized. Remember, they're part of a system that's a pyramid. They love the pyramid. They want to be on top of the pyramid, but they've been deceived because it's just another works-based religion. They don't have the gospel. They don't want the gospel. They don't want freedom through a relationship with Christ. They want to work and to slave away, and God will let them do that. But it's a pyramid. So they believe in institutionalization and a religion that is institutionalized. It's all one big club. Let's look at the next one, the White House. White House Faith-Based and Community Initiative. Did you know about this? Let's read it. Faith-based and community organizations, FBCOs, have a long tradition of helping Americans in need and together represent an integral part of our nation's social service network. Yet all too often, the federal government has put in place complicated rules and regulations preventing faith-based community organizations from competing for funds on an equal footing with other organizations. President Bush believes that besides being inherently unfair, such an approach can waste taxpayer dollars and cut off the poor from successful programs. Federal funds should be awarded to the most effective organizations, whether public or private, large or small, faith-based or secular, and all must be allowed to compete on a level playing field. Now look, I'm going to give a couple caveats here. I am all for helping the poor. Absolutely. There are so many poor people, especially all over the world, children that do not get their daily bread, and it's just very sad. However, however, you have to read this not from what they say, but from the context of everything we've been talking about. The lamb looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. This is Satan all the time. Looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. You cannot trust what they write down and they tell you. You have to look at context. You have to look at the unseen things. This is not about helping the poor. This is about, again, building and accommodating people to the reality that church and state should be unified. Oh, you know, it's unfair that these religious organizations can't get the funding they need because they're they're doing the common good. Again, you're going to hear common good over and over again. It's a Jesuit thing. The common good sounds good, but it's not good because it really is just communism. It's a form of communism. Common good for who is the question. And you'll find out it's not for you. But the common good and this idea that oh, social service, the social justice gospel, this is all about, this has Catholic written all over it. And again, it's designed to make, it seems good. Like, oh yeah, these places should have a level playing field with other companies so they can raise money and do good in cult, in society. But wait a minute, this social justice gospel, are we spreading the gospel when you're giving people bread to eat? Or are you just giving them food? I agree that people should be fed. Look, I'm all for helping the poor. But if we help somebody and give them something to eat and we don't spread the gospel, then it's pointless. Okay, it's it's pointless because ultimately you need the bread that feeds you for eternity, not just for a day. You need both, really, but you have to 
look at this and see the truth behind it. This is about creating a softer and softer barrier between church and state, religion and politics. It's all about integrating these systems slowly, and they have to go very slowly to accommodate you. They're not going to say outright, you know what, there's no more church separation between church and state. There's no more separation, so, you know, that's it. We're going back to that. That's going to be too much of a shock. But if they go slowly, they do this law. This was several years ago with Bush. And then, you know, there's more stuff going on with religion and politics. And there's, you know, little committees and things. And pretty soon it's like, oh, after a few generations, you it's just a fact of life that religion is part of politics. Do you see how this works? This is how they plan their timetables. They don't plan you know, one at a time. They, they plan over hundreds of years through countless generations. It's quite fascinating, but you have to have discernment. This next one comes from also, I mean, it's it's a White House thing, but it's it's called the Ten Commandments um, Commission, the Ten Commandments Commission. And you can find it at Ten Commandments Today or TenCommandmentsDay.com. This is a day to honor the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments Commission, a Judeo-Christian initiative for a better tomorrow. Now, right away, you should have a red flag every time you hear the term Judeo-Christian. Judeo-Christian does not exist. There is no relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Christianity is a continuation of the Hebrew scriptures through Christ, who fulfilled them. Judaism was created several hundred years later and officialized as a religion, even though they claim that they are connected to Hebrewism and the scriptures, all of their things are just the commentaries of the rabbis and the traditions of men. Judaism is a rebellion to the truth because the Jews who converted to Christianity, they were Jews too, right? That's where it started in Jerusalem. And that's how Christianity evolved. It came out of Hebrewism, the scriptures. That's the tradition. It continued through the Messiah. The Jews who rejected that, who didn't want to be accountable to God, they wanted to have their little workspace pyramid where they could be in control and seem pious, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Those are the people that then created Judaism later through the rabbis and all these various traditions and mysticism and Kabbalah and Zohar and all these, you know, the Talmud. These texts are antichrist, man. They're antichrist. And if anybody who's actually read them they're, they're absurd. They're totally in contradiction with the Bible. So the Holy Spirit could not be, could not have written the Talmud and the scriptures. So there's no connection between Judeo and Christian. Don't ever try to unite those things together because it doesn't work. It, there's no connection. Judaism is rebellion. But anyway, moving on. The Ten Commandments Commission was formed in the spring of 2005. The main purpose of the organization is to rally public officials community leaders, international diplomats, and grassroots activists to instill Judeo-Christian values in society. This is the purpose of the Ten Commandments Commission. What does this have to do in a country that supposedly separates church and state? You tell me. Unless, of course, the whole separation of church and state is a dialectic, and that's just designed to create pressure to ultimately lead to unification of church and state, which is what's happening. Gosh, we need those biblical values again. It sounds so good, man. I agree, we do need the Bible. But these people don't care about the Bible. If they did, they wouldn't use the term Judeo-Christian. You can tell who's in charge of this movement because of the term Judeo-Christian. 
And so you have to use discernment because these things are not what they seem. Let's look at Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn is recruiting an army of God in growing Christian nationalist movement. This is from last year. We're under warfare, one speaker told them. Another said she would take a bullet for my nation, while a third insisted they hate you because they hate Jesus. Oh gosh, such good rhetoric. Attendees were told, now is the time to put on the whole armor of God. Gosh. Then retired three-star Army General Flynn, the tour's biggest draw, invited people to be baptized. What's going on here with all this stuff? Do you see past it now? Are you starting to see the truth? I mean, first off, armor of God is about spiritual things. It's about faith, prayer, being steadfast in our, our, our spiritual strength. It's not this meme culture of, you know, knights in shining armor and basically becoming crusaders and fighting against the big bad deep state and trying to achieve a political outcome. Do you see what's going on? How they have conflated the emotional aspects of all these things that are true. Like, yeah, they hate you because they hate Jesus. Of course, Jesus said that. Jesus said that you would be persecuted for my name's sake. But remember that the devil uses scripture better than everybody. And what does that mean? Well, in this case, what are they, what are they saying with this? Who is they? They is obviously the deep state, the big, bad, dark communists. And they hate you as the conservative because they hate Jesus. So you see what's going on here, how they're mixing two things together? It's not about the gospel. It's about the dark hates you as a conservative. And because they hate Jesus. So there you go. Conservatives and Jesus, that's the same thing. Political, you know, if you're on the right side, then you are also a Christian. So that's that's assumed in this statement, that Christian nationalism is assumed. And of course, Michael Flynn is calling people to get baptized, but we know Michael Flynn had an interesting prayer on the seven rays. Here it is, seven rays prayer to Archangel Michael by Michael Flynn. And if you, I'm not going to play this prayer, but if you listen to this prayer, he's invoking the legions and, and the thousand points of life. Flynn wraps up by talking about seven rays, which appears to be a reference to theosophy and the ascended masters of the I am cult. Now look, Elizabeth Clare Prophet I actually think it says something here. George H.W. Bush, when he talked about the thousand points of light. Yeah, I mean, this whole site will talk about a lot of these people. I'll read something really quick. But first, theosophy, if you remember from the Age of Enlightenment, or yeah, the, the time of the Enlightenment in the 1800s, theosophy was started by Helena Blavatsky. Helena Blavatsky was like the grandmother of the New Age movement. And she believed that Lucifer was the savior. And of course, all these people do. And so... Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who came later, who's also like a New Age guru type of person, had this prayer to the seven rays of light. Remember, we talked about Mithra, the sun god, the Statue of Liberty with the seven rays. All this stuff is related. The prayer that Michael Flynn gave to this audience, at a, I forget what church it was, it is literally exactly the prayer by Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Now, when he's pressured on this, oh, it's, you know, it's it's um, St. Michael and that's my name. And, you know, God, oh, come on. Come on. You have to see through these things. You have to see through these things. Flynn is all about those digital warriors and the 17th letter of the alphabet and all this stuff about Christian nationalism. It is the light side, the false light that is fighting against the dark. And they're recruiting a grassroots movement just like they did in the Bolshevik Revolution. It's a copycat of Operation Trust of the Bolshevik Revolution. 
only this time they're working it in the opposite direction. Do you think there's anything new under the sun? There isn't. But this article, I want to read something here really quick. On January 20th, uh, 2001, President George W. Bush, during his first inaugural address, faced the obelisk known as the Washington Monument and twice referred to an angel that rides in the whirlwind and directs this storm. Interesting how that also correlates to what Trump said about the storm and the storm is coming. Well, they talked about the angel, the angel that rides in the whirlwind. His reference was credited to Virginia statesman John Page, who wrote to T Thomas Jefferson after the Declaration of Independence was signed, We know the race is not to the swift nor to the battle of the strong. Do you not think an angel rides in the whirlwind and directs this storm? So we talked about Thomas Jefferson and how he's not a Christian. He's a Luciferian. But of course, we didn't talk about John Page. And we see this reference here that George Bush made to these people in their writings. Five weeks after the inaugural on Wednesday, February 28th, 2001, Congressman Major R. Owens of New York stood before the House of Representatives and prayed to the angel in the whirlwind. Hmm, that's interesting. He asked the spiritual force to guide the future and fate of the United States. 28 weeks later, 19 Islamic terrorists attacked the United States. Of course, we had that whole debacle. When Bush was giving his second inaugural speech four years later, he again offered cryptic commentary saying, for half a century, America defended our own freedom by standing watch on distant borders. After the shipwreck of communism came years of relative quiet, years of repose, years of sabbatical, and then there came a day of fire. A few paragraphs following, Bush added, by our efforts, we have lit a fire as well. A fire in the minds of men. Interesting. It warms those who feel its power. It burns those who fight its progress. And one day, this untamed fire of freedom will reach the darkest corners of our world. Dark to light. George Bush. The phrase, a fire in the minds of men, is from Fyodor Dostoevsky's 19th century book, The Possessed, which is the devils, a novel set in pre-revolutionary Russia. There we go. What I was just talking about, where civil resistance is seen championed by the nihilist Sergei Nishayev, who tries to ignite a revolution of such destructive power that society will be completely destroyed. In his closing comments, Bush himself tied the inaugural crypticisms to the Masonic revolvement in the American Revolution, saying, when our founders declared a new world order of the ages, they knew what's up. They were acting on an ancient hope. That's interesting. That is meant to be fulfilled. What ancient hope is that? An ancient hope for a one world order? We know whose hope that is. The phrase, a new world order of the ages, is taken from the masonically designed great seal, Novus Ordo Seclorum, and Bush further acknowledged that the secret society members were acting on an ancient hope that is meant to be fulfilled. If you remember, of course, from the dollar bill, how there's the the top, or the bottom, I think, is Novus Ordo Seclorum, but then the top is Anuit Coeptis, which is he approves of our undertaking. They have tried to make a new world order every single time, and every single time God has come and destroyed it. It happened with the flood, then it happened again with the Tower of Babel, then all these various world empires that tried to basically rule the world. He just brought them up and judged them with, with uh, next empires. And this final empire, this post-Roman empire, the papal empire, the union of church and state, will come back to a one world system. And when it does that, it's going to be destroyed because that's when it's going to usher in the mark of the beast and all these different things. And at that point, the return of Christ will be extremely near. So 
what is the point of all of these things that I just read? Flynn is not a Christian. I don't think he is. And again, I, I hope that I'm wrong, but Flynn is a secret society member that copies prayers of people who were Luciferians, encourages Christian nationalism, is in on all these secret ops, and basically is an agent. So ultimately, what's going on here? People are being moved from dark to light. And you can tell that this was a plan much older than Flynn. It's been around since many, many years ago. The Bushes talked about it. Everybody played their part. Again, these people do everything very calculated and slowly. It's like a snake just slithering around slowly until it can constrict you to death. They don't take any gambles. They do everything very slowly. And this was all, everybody had a part to play. But now we are living in the final moments of that, um, of that plan. Look at this. Science says religion is good for your health. Gosh, so many ads. This is from 2019. Now, of course, it's an older article, but there's so many like it. You know, it's, oh, science is good for you. Science says it's good for you to have a Sabbath on Sunday, to rest on Sunday. There's a whole Green Sunday movement. You got to look into that, which is, uh, you know, about basically Sunday needs to be a day of rest for our stress hormones. And oh my gosh, all these things that sound so good and, and secular, when in reality, it's paying homage to the beast. Sunday to America is a holy day. All the banks are closed on Sunday. You have the weekend, which is basically, what does the weekend mean? Well, the weekend means that Sunday is the seventh day because it's the weekend. But in reality, Saturday is the seventh day. It's always been the seventh day for the last, you know, almost 1,700 years. So think about that. Why is, why is Sunday the seventh day? Why is that the day of rest? Because the papacy has declared that the mark of its authority is to change the law from Saturday to Sunday, from the day of rest on Saturday, which honors God as the creator, to the day of rest on Sunday, which honors the papacy in the Catholic Church as the creator, in a sense, right? As the way to salvation. The reason God rested on the seventh day was a shadow and type for his resting in the tomb as Jesus. And that rest reminds us of our freedom from sin, from spiritual slavery, just like the Sabbath was a reminder of the Israelites resting from their Egyptian slave masters. It's all a fulfillment of the law. But if you are the Antichrist, which of course the papacy is, and they rewrite the times and laws, just like Daniel says, one of those things was with the Sabbath rest, and and the Sunday is proof of that. Now, we also know that there's been Sunday legislation. If you don't know that, then you should look into it. I'll talk about that in the My Mark of the Beast episode. But you can tell already what probably one of the candidates for the Mark of the Beast is. It probably has to do something with worship on a particular day. And that day is Sunday. Because there's been legislation throughout history that the power in question has passed. It passed legislation when it first came to power with Constantine. They made it illegal to do any work on Sunday, and if you did, you would be punished. At some point, they even killed people for it throughout history. And as recently as the United States in the 1800s, there were pushes to mandate a day of rest on Sunday. Now, that failed the first time. It failed. But the question is, will they try it again? And I think the answer is yes, because they need to create the culture for it. They need to create the culture that will adopt this rule. It wasn't ready for it at the time. And so that's why the image of the beast needs to be built, because people will will gladly adopt 
Holy Sunday as the day of rest because, gosh, we don't want to be satanic like those Democrats. But even the Democrats, as you can see, there's a rise in the religious left. Everything is moving towards one point. I mean, everything is is coming in that direction. So ultimately, just look at the big picture. You have the Reawaken America tour that was going on, which is this whole Great Awakening versus Great or Great Reset. The Great Reset, that's the big bad boogeyman. What's that going to cause? That's going to cause the Great Awakening. Don't choose that. Choose this. Don't go blue, go red. Don't go to the Great Reset. Go to the Great Awakening. Then you have all these... The poster that I saw for that is just brilliant. I mean, they have all the big evil guys like Yo- Noah Harari, Yoval Noah Harari, and Klaus Schwab, and you know all these prime ministers of various kinds and just evil people. And then you have like the clean cut guys that are smiling, all the conservative guys. Oh my gosh, you know, you got the Charlie Kirk and, you know, Nick Fuentes and, you know, Trump and oh my gosh, all your idols that you can worship and look for salvation to because they're of sound mind. They know what they're talking about. Oh yeah. They don't. They're in on it. It's all dialectics, just shadows, just like Plato's cave that are designed to manipulate you into believing something. But this is the world we live in. Even the John Durham report that recently came out, you know, this video, the time of this is 2023. I'm in June, late June. The Durham report is being released. And I saw this clip of him on, you know, being grilled by Congress, supposedly. It's all to me theater. But either way, they were saying, you know, what about your reputation? You're associated with Trump and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you know, my reputation was my Lord and my family. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, they're clapping for him. And yes a firm religion. And again, I don't know his heart. I don't know John Durham's relationship to Christ. But John Durham is a Catholic. He's a Roman Catholic. He's a devout Roman Catholic. And so the question is, what Lord are we talking about? The 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 Christ of the Roman Catholic faith is not the same Christ of the Bible because they bring in Mary as a co-redeemer you're not, you know, you can't really approach Jesus because you need Mary to approach him for you. You need to eat his body and his flesh through the, the sacrifice every Sunday on the mass. I mean, there's a lot of things that are very, very blasphemous about what the Catholic Church teaches. So, again, but it, these little things, if you have eyes to see, you can see where this is going. You have the big, bad, evil Democrats that are grilling him and talking about the world, and he's standing up for the truth and religion, and yes. I stand with Durham, but Durham's loyal to the Pope, so don't be so easily fooled. So, conclusion. There's a lot to conclude on these things, but look, there are 70 million Catholics in the U.S. right now. Compare that to about 100 million evangelicals. Half or more than half of the population of the United States is religious. It's religious, and... In, there's a book called The Emerging Order, God in the Age of Scarcity by Jeremy Rifkin, and he predicted that evangelical churches would be the way that the New World Order would be created. Of course, he's not alone because this is what's happening. A lot of people don't see this, but some people are talking about it, and hopefully you are starting to see it now, that the evangelical churches, that the American system is bringing forth this union of church and state and making it desirable by all the things we just talked about. These things are just a cursory review of the religio-political climate in the United States. And I looked at old articles from 20 plus years ago to relatively new articles. It is a 
constantly building momentum. And as it builds, you have a ping pong between left and right, left and right. And as you noticed, in the last couple of years, it's become very divisive. But that's on purpose. Because the more divisive it is, the more they can ping pong you quicker and quicker. The more extreme the left position is, the more extreme they can get you to the right. Christian nationalism, going back to the beast that was, is a very extreme thing. That was an extreme system. So you need an equally extreme system that is opposite of that, seemingly opposite, to push you in that direction. And of course, that's why all this evil stuff, this seemingly evil stuff, which of course it is evil, human trafficking is evil, these these communist atheist people are evil, but it's all theater. It's all theater because they're on the same side. They're pushing you, they're just revolting you and disgusting you so much that you want the other extreme. But of course, remember, the Bible says, do not swerve to the left or to the right. So, the truth is that religion and politics in the United States are not as separate as you think they are. They are unifying. They have been uni- unifying for a while, and they will be unified. And the U.S. will be the first place that this system will be birthed, and it will be given life. And that will be taken up by the rest of the world, because everywhere throughout the world now, it's, it's all swinging to the right. All the prime ministers and leaders are being slowly replaced with very conservative, right-leaning people who are loyal to the papacy. And of course, they're all loyal to some degree, but you know, it's it's one big cobweb of nonsense. The current push with all this great reset stuff and darkness and, and liberal dark world order is to get you into a light world order. And that will be a Christian nationalist system. This is the image that is being built. And when that image is complete, it will be the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17. So you have Revelation 13, which gives you the overview of the beast that gets wounded, seemingly wounded, mortal wound, and then it gets healed and people are wandering after the beast. Oh my gosh, the beast is so amazing. Who can make war with it? That's the big picture. Then John goes back into more detail. This is a classic technique. Big picture, then go back into it and give you another layer of detail. Big picture, go back into it. Then he talks about the second beast that comes up and basically does the image of the beast, the mark of the beast. So it's it's coming back into focus during that period of time where the wound is healing and then it's healed. And then it finishes, the revelation finishes with chapter 17. Of course, that's not the last chapter, but the, the system, the final iteration is the woman riding the beast. And the woman riding the beast is perfectly identified in the Catholic Church. I mean, absolutely identified. We looked at that in two episodes. It's probably over five hours of content. Politically, historically, spiritually, doctrine-wise, there is no better candidate than the papacy in history. And you have to know your history. But now, let's talk about signs and wonders. Signs and wonders that the beast is working and that that is going to bring people back into communion with the beast. And how does that, how does that happen? What is a sign of wonder? Well, if it's a individual prophet, they're working miracles that people are marveling after, right? If it's, if they're false miracles, they're false signs and wonders. So either way, they're things that seem amazing and they make you marvel and take away your discernment, right? They deceive you in some way into basically persuading you to do something. So let's talk about the signs and wonders that are relating to the image of the beast. And if I pull up a couple of them here, the first one is talking about Hollywood, actually not Hollywood, but uh, we'll talk about Hollywood in a second. I want to talk about 
Jesuits and the, and the influence they had on Shakespeare, because all of this will come into play as we look at these sources. And these are just a few, but how much did the Jesuits influence Shakespeare? Well, let's find out. If you know your history, then quite a bit. What has been sidelined for centuries, however, is the possibility that this blueprint was conceived not by Shakespeare himself, certainly not by his English predecessors, but by the acknowledged educators of Europe, the Jesuits. Central to the revolutionary Jesuit system of education was drama, and that drama had certain qualities. It had a it had to have a high moral purpose to win spectators from worldly vanity. But it was far from pious. Its intended audience was often influential and mainly secular, and included both Protestant and Catholic, noblemen and artisan, an eager audience as it turned out, who from the mid-16th to the mid-18th century packed the burgeoning Jesuit theaters across Europe from Prague to Messina, constantly demanding more and pouring money into ever more lavish productions. The Jesuit mission was not simply to entertain, is to instill a world-friendly spirituality into ordinary people as well as emperors in pursuit of the common good. There it is. We talked about that, the common good, and a better society. A better society under who is the question. They used the best writers they could find, ideally actors, and deployed them throughout their network of theaters to spread their winning method, incorporating both profane and spiritual into their work, along with music and dance, in order to promote the common good and what Ignatius called the help of souls. Interesting. Let's read another one, then we can talk about it, because this is all just so fascinating. This is a book called Jesuit Hollywood by Sean Wilcock. How the papacy and its Jesuits controlled the Hollywood controlled Hollywood for decades and have continued to influence it ever since. Very well-researched book, but let's read a little bit about it. This demonstrates with wealth of evidence the way in which the Roman Catholic institution, the world's most powerful religio-political system, there it is, pursues its objective of world conquest by seeking to harness and make use of the most powerful entertainment medium the world has ever known, the movie industry. Did you know that? During Hollywood's so-called golden age, the movie industry was extremely pro-Catholic with the content of the movies during that era being controlled not by the Jewish studio owners, but by Jesuits and their henchmen. But another sinister influence was at work in Hollywood as well, communism. Gosh, are you starting to see the dialectics here? The Jesuits started communism, so (laughs) this is just really funny. And in the process of time, this began to displace the Roman Catholic domination of Hollywood. The Jesuits then deliberately changed tactics and began to support the kind of movies They had once opposed, much to the consternation and confusion of those Roman Catholics who were of the anti-communist generation of an earlier period of Roman Catholicism. Remember that there's a two-headed snake. I remember from Art of War that the general, which is what the Jesuit leader is called, can sometimes go against the sovereign, which is the Pope, if the agenda is worthwhile. And this is exactly what's happened. A proper understanding of these two very different Jesuit approaches to the movie industry, the first being direct control over Hollywood and the condemnation of everything, not in accordance with the Roman Catholic values, and the second being an about-face on those very values and the exerting of indirect influence rather than outright control, is the only way to properly understand how Hollywood has played such a huge role in the collapse of the morals of the West. Isn't this just fascinating? I hope it's fascinating to you because the reality is that the Jesuits control both sides. Do you see what happened? It's not the Jews that controlled Hollywood. This is just, 
an illusion. You know, like when we, we'll talk about Mel Gibson here in a second with the Passion of the Christ, but the whole dialectic of the Jews versus Mel Gibson, it's a dialectic. Mel Gibson is a staunch Catholic. He wants to go back to the beast days, man. So this whole dark versus light, it's just an illusion. It really is. Mel Gibson is not a Christian. He is somebody that believes there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. He believes Mary is a co-redeemer. And I have quotes for all these, that he believes Mary is a co-redeemer. He believes a lot of things. And when we go to the Passion of the Christ, you'll see that he was guided by a false spirit to create that movie. And it's, it's pretty crazy. But ultimately, these are just dialectics. The Roman Catholic system created the theaters all the way from Shakespeare up until today. It's all about manipulating the culture and creating a particular culture designed to worship the beast. These are false signs and wonders. People marvel after superheroes and different things in the movie theaters. These are all by design to slowly create a culture that is obedient, that is distracted, and that ultimately, when the time is right, will be primed and ready to receive more and more propaganda. And that's already happening. The propaganda is shifting. It's shifting from hardcore left to hardcore right. And you'll see as we get into it with things like The Chosen, The Hallow App, Pure Flix. I mean, all these things we're going to talk about in just a minute. But I wanted to show you these two sources because, again, life is not what it seems. Shakespeare probably never existed. He was probably a made-up character just like Sun Tzu in The Art of War. Remember, The Art of War was released a few years before the Jesuits were banned. And if you read The Art of War, it's so clearly obvious that it's talking about the Jesuit general and the Pope. I mean, it's just, it's profound. But all these things happen right before the French Revolution. And it begs the question as to who really wrote the Art of War. And the question is the Jesuits. The answer is the Jesuits wrote the Art of War. But I digress. Let's look at some false signs and wonders. Let's start with The Chosen, which is, gosh, I mean, The Chosen surpasses Baywatch in popularity. Series to be translated into 600 languages. Okay, first off, The Chosen has a Roman Catholic priest as one of its script consultants. It also has a Messianic rabbi and an evangelical. The question is, how can you have agreement between these three belief systems, especially the evangelical and the Catholic priest? There's no agreement between these two things. Ultimately, there are so many places where the Catholics read it differently than a Protestant. Transubstantiation, baptism, all these things are you know, completely contradicted with one another in the Catholic faith versus the Protestant denominations, most of them. So that's really strange. Also, it's produced by a Mormon production company. Now, of course, they're going to find all kinds of ways to sweep this under the rug. Like, oh, it's not actually a Mormon thing because it's not really endorsed by the Mormon church. But look, the people, the production company is a Mormon production company. Now, again, do the math in your mind. Look at secret societies. Look at how all these things started. If you know the history of the Mormon church, that's going to play its part too. The Mormon church is just like the Catholic church. There's no difference. They're, they're very on good terms with one another. Let's put it that way. They use the same language as Christians, but they deny the divinity of Christ. They, they don't see the Son of God meaning the second person of the Trinity, they see is literally the son of God that was born. They think that God was once man. All their founders were Freemasons. So the Mormon church is really just no different. And their Joseph Smith was led by a false 
angel, which we know the Lucifer masquerades as an angel of light. Just like Muhammad was led by a false angel, all these people were led by the same spirit, and it's not the Holy Spirit. But the Chosen is very popular, and everybody's wandering after the Chosen. We know that the actor is Catholic. Pope Francis meets actor who plays Jesus in The Chosen. There he is, Jonathan Rumi. He's just so intent with the Pope. The actor who plays Jesus in the internet series The Chosen met Pope Francis on Wednesday, fulfilling a lifelong dream as he visits Rome this week to view pilgrimage sites related to the Gospels. Why would you go to pilgrimage sites? This is a pagan thing to go to pilgrimage sites. This is what the pagans did. The whole point of the gospel is that there is no more need for geography as a way to practice your faith. You don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to go to a Mecca. You have a relationship with Christ that is accessible at any point in time. But let's keep reading. Dallas Jenkins, the director of The Chosen, also met Pope Francis at the end of the Pope's general audience in Vatican City's Paul the Sixth audience hall. Now look, <laughs> this is the same hall that we looked at when we looked at Exposing Mystery Babylon that was built to look like a snake. It was built to look like a snake with the mouth of the snake having a blasphemous statue, which is probably, in their mind, the Antichrist, rising from the ashes of destruction and bringing in the light. And that's where the Pope sits, to speak. Literally, the mouth of the snake is where the Pope speaks. This is Vatican City Paul the sixth audience hall. And that's where Dallas Jenkins met the Pope and got his blessing, of course. So, you know, do the math. I really love this. I really loved his sense of humor, he said. And he's just such a very sweet nature about him. So for me, I appreciate all that, even if I don't relate to the formality of it, Jenkins said. Okay, so it's all about how nice the Pope is, not what he stands for and what he teaches people. Great. I'm glad this person is putting on a successful show about Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? This is a false gospel that is now being made using media. But let's look at other things like Hallow, the Catholic prayer app. It's the number one prayer app. There's like, I think, two million plus downloads at the time of this recording. It's a meditation app, supposedly. But, you know, it's getting people to do like things like this. Hallow, Hallow's Lent prayer, Pray 40 community. Prayer challenge for 2023, imitation of Christ. So do the prayer challenge. Look at this. Pray every day this Lent with Mark Malberg, Father Mike Schmitz, Immaculate Buganaza, whatever, Jonathan Rumi, and Jim Caviezel. Oh my gosh, they play Jesus. I can pray with Jesus here? My my idols from my shows, my, my movies, Passion of the Christ and Chosen. Oh my gosh, it must be really spiritual if all of these people are guiding prayers. It must be something. This is just idolatry and images and statues in a new and blasphemous and living way. It's really quite profound. Again, these are false signs and wonders. Instead of having icons and statues, they have used actors, just like we talked about with Shakespeare, on the theater, on the stage of life to create representations, to sway you. Oh my gosh, Jim Caviezel? He played Jesus. I, I relate to him because I relate to Jesus in that movie. So now he's there and I'm now persuaded to go and download this app and do the Pray 40 challenge. Oh, that sounds so spiritual to do prayer every day and, and to be guided by the beast through this works-based religion. All these things are just, if you have eyes to see, then you see them very clearly. 
Let's look at the next one. Martin Scorsese uh, meets with Pope Francis, announces a film about Jesus. So let's see what Martin Scorsese had to say. I have responded to the Pope's appeal to artists in the only way I know how. So wait a minute, the Pope made an appeal to artists? Isn't the Pope a Jesuit? That's interesting. By imagining and writing a screenplay for a film about Jesus. Here we go again. Scorsese announced on Saturday during a Rome conference at the Vatican, according to multiple reports, and I'm about to start making it, the director added, suggesting that this could be his next film. Also on Saturday, before attending the conference, titled The Global Aesthetics of the Catholic Imagination. God, if that doesn't tell you image of the beast, the global aesthetics of the Catholic imagination. If that doesn't tell you image of the beast, I don't know what does. Scorsese and his wife, Helen Morris, met Pope Francis during a brief private audience at the Vatican. So what's going on here? You have politics, you have movies, they're all bowing down to the Pope because they're all Roman Catholic and they're all enamored in bringing this image to life. They're the ones shaping the, the culture, and the culture is becoming more and more Catholic and paying homage to the beast. People are marveling after the beast, and you'll see with the Passion of the Christ how much they marveled, and there's more and more of this stuff coming out, which is slowly shifting your attention from having a relationship with the Bible and the Word of God to these physical, fleshly actors that are questionable, they have questionable pasts, and subliminal programming of things like transubstantiation and doing the rosary and all these things are going to be subliminally programmed through these false signs and wonders. Let's look at the next one. This is a quote from Jeff Rentz, who uh, I believe he was a broadcast broadcaster, TV broadcaster, but he, he said this, it's been demonstrated that well within two minutes of watching television, most people enter a hypnotic alpha state bordering on theta. Viewers in this state are no longer able to critically evaluate, discern, or pass judgment from their own moral database on the material being viewed. The information just flows unimpeded into their subconscious year in and year out. This is from Jeff Rentz, who was a popular TV broadcaster, I believe. But the point is is very, very strong, which is that, look, you cannot let television and these false signs and wonders program you subliminally. I used to watch The Passion of the Christ because I wasn't aware. And there was a few things I was like, that's eh, kind of weird, but I never really thought about it. And that's the point. Until you learn the truth about who produced this, why they produced it, what subliminal messages are in there, what what is being programmed. And when you realize that, you snap out of the truth. Because again, Plato's Cave, the shadows on the wall are so entertaining. And the prisoners do not want to escape because they believe the shadows are reality. But if you know the truth and you've been made aware and you try to make people aware of the truth, you're called crazy. And so hopefully you aren't going to call me crazy because so far it's been very clear what's going on. Now here's another one by the Christian Post. Nearly all of the top 25 worship songs are tied to five megachurches in the past decade. Huh. That's interesting. So most of the worship songs that everybody's singing and going into a trance-like state when they go worship, where are they from? Are they from the Bible? Are they from biblical things? No, they're from the five megachurches like Bethel and Hillsong. These places that are teaching blasphemous things and they're leading so many people astray because they're basically agents of 
the Roman Catholic Church. And look, it sounds crazy. It really does. But again, if you understand secret societies, if you understand the hidden shadow network, the shadow government behind everything, all this separation is just an illusion. It really is. They're trying to bring everything back into the Mother Church. And part of it is uniting Protestant America with the Mother Church. And that is happening. This culture that we live in, where it's about pop songs, about Jesus, and oh my gosh, Jesus on TV, and this is all part of creating a culture that embraces the unification of church and state. And it's not going to be based on sound biblical doctrine, I can tell you that. You also have things like shows, gosh, like Mrs. Davis, which is about a nun, and and she's in like this sci-fi world. I mean, nuns are Catholic. These are the things that are programming people subtly with Catholic values. You have TBN, CBN. These things are like famous evangelical networks. They're influencing people with false and watered-down teachings. In TBN especially, you have PureFlix. This is the antecedent or the, the opposite to Netflix, right? You have these things that are now, it's like, oh, we had Netflix, but that's the deep, deep, dark, deep state. They're really evil. Let's make PureFlix. It's all about Christian values. Well, wait a minute. Who's in charge of that? Who owns these things? It's the same people that own everything else, man. Angel Studios. They're like the new Disney of the Christian right. Angel Studios is putting on a ton of different movies. They put on The the Chosen, I believe, initially, and they're doing all these animated movies, which, again, they look so cute, but they are institutionalized Christianity, and it's, it's part of, again, remember who was in control of Hollywood. Remember who was in control of Shakespeare, of the theaters in Europe. It was a Jesuit thing because the theater is the weapon of the counter-reformation. Learning against learning. You should look into that. The counter-reformation is a grassroots movement against the original grassroots movement, which is the Reformation. And it's not going to be over until there is a culture that begs for the adoption of a one-world religion under the beast. And that's already happening. Of course, you also had The Passion of the Christ, which is one of the top movies of all time with over $600 million that it's grossed. And Mel Gibson is a staunch and fanatical Catholic. So the question is, is there more behind this movie? And of course there is, and we're going to look into it because it is a great template for understanding how this image of the beast is being formed. Now, so far I've outlined quite a lot of things about religion and politics. I've looked at these false signs and wonders that are shaping culture into a more religious union of politics and where religion and all this stuff is just, it's, it's always there, but it's not true Christianity. It's religion. It's religious activity. It's doing prayer challenges and hanging out with all your cool idols like Jim Caviezel and you know, all these these people that play the different parts in these Jesus movies, these are just idols that they're doing because they know people are idolaters by nature. We tend to idol, idolize things and to put our hopes in people and things that we see. This is the story of humanity. And they're just playing to that by making you these seductive shows that are just, oh my gosh, they seem so real and so personable. And then they use those same people to manipulate you into other things. It's It's just, it's profoundly satanic, really. And if you have eyes to see, hopefully now you see it. But all of these things go after the lust of the eyes. They subvert you with false theology. The Chosen is full of theological problems. In fact, recently, I think they had something with a pride flag. They posted on Twitter, you know, and and it was, in the picture was this gay pride flag. Okay, now, 
first off, if you're posting something, you are very attentive about what's in the picture. So nobody's going to tell me that this was an accident and, oh, you know. And, of course, people started talking about it. And, of course, it brought up the whole idea of, well, you know, we're just tolerant of everybody on the stage. And it's like, come on, dudes. You're, you're making a show that's supposed to be about Jesus, and you're literally endorsing homosexual pride. Shame on you. Shame on you. I mean, ultimately, look, if you struggle, struggle with homosexuality, that's a different thing than identifying and being proud of it. There, everybody has sins that we struggle with and lust and, and so on. So it doesn't matter whether it's lust of a woman or lust of a man. It's lust, and we all struggle with those things. But identifying as a homosexual and being proud of it has no place in a Christian walk. And so for an organization to proudly and and sort of surreptitiously, secretly, you know, show that, I mean, it tells you where they stand. But, you know, this is this is what we're dealing with. I mean, these people are... are on the surface, it seemed good, it looks like a lamb, but in reality, they speak like a dragon. They really do. All of these things came out of the United States that I just mentioned. So the United States is the system that is acting as a false prophet by creating all of these false signs and wonders that are making you marvel after the beast, marvel after Catholicism, marvel after its values, marvel after all these great sites of pilgrimages and saints and Oh, and Mary and all these things that people are marveling after and will come to appreciate more and more as time goes on. They really will. I hope that you will wake up and see the truth and not be one of them. So let's talk about the passion of the Christ. And this will be our final thing today because it's it's really, there's so much occult stuff in the passion of the Christ that I don't even know where to begin. So this is from the American Magazine, and it's titled Mel Gibson and the Dangers of Catholic Antisemitism. Again, remember the dialectic. Antisemitism, Catholics versus the Jews. This is this is all just BS. But let's let's read a little bit about it. Like his father, Mel Gibson rejects the modern Catholic Church and considers himself a set of encantist Catholic. Literally, the Holy See is vacant. There was nothing wrong with the Catholic Church before Vatican II's reforms. Gibson, who was six when the Vatican II began, set on a press tour for the film Father Stew last year. Again, that was a Catholic movie. It didn't need to be fixed. It was doing pretty well. Really, Mel? I beg to differ, and I hope that you do too, listening to this or watching this, especially if you've seen the last couple of episodes. There was plenty of things wrong with the Catholic Church, and there still is. Gibson built his own church in the Agora Hills, not far from Malibu, the Church of the Holy Family, which holds services but has no relationship with the Catholic Church. So again, these, you know, look, these things are just, they're they're dialectics, man. The separation that you see, the conflicts that you see, they're just, they're false, they're false conflicts. Mel Gibson is still serving the Catholic Church. He's still serving the Pope, even though he says, oh, I'm I'm against it, you know, we got to go back to the way it was, you know, such and such. He is either knowingly doing it because he's part of a secret order or he's doing it anyway because he's deceived and his efforts are profiting the Catholic Church. But either way, it's not good. In either case, let's move on. Mel Gibson says his wife could be going to hell. (laughs) Let's see what that's about. Now, let me just uh, close this ad. Okay. 
Sorry for the ads, guys. I mean, it's just constant spam with these stupid sites. They're always asking you to sign up for stuff. Okay. Okay, let's just go to the top here. Mel Gibson has come under fire for being hard on Jews in his film, The Passion of the Christ. But apparently he feels that Protestants are also doomed to damnation. In fact, it looks like Gibson, a conservative Catholic, believes that his Episcopalian wife could be going to hell. Gibson was interviewed by the Herald Sun in Australia, and the reporter asked the star if Protestants are denied eternal salvation. This is what he said. There is no salvation for those outside the church. Of course, he's talking about the Catholic church. Gibson replied, I believe it. So he believes the same thing that the popes believe. So is he really against the popes? I don't think so. There's no church. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, not the Catholic church. If anything, leave the Catholic church so that you can be saved. This is from ChristianNews.net. Passion of the Christ actor Jim Caviezel says Mary guided his career. The film depicts her as co-redemptrix. The Passion of the Christ actor Jim Caviezel, a Roman Catholic, recently delivered a tribute to Mary at the Eucharist, Eucharistic Holy Hour for the World Peace through the Mother of All Peoples. The Mother of All Peoples. Really? This is a pagan idea. In Amsterdam during which he outlined how the popular Mel Gibson film, of course, which was embraced by evangelicals and Catholics alike, my goodness, what a what an interesting phenomenon, how it depicts Our Lady's role as co-redemptrix with Jesus. No, she is not a co-redemptrix, but this is what the Catholics believe. This is what the actor believes. So is he truly a Christian if he believes that there are other ways that you can be saved, that Mary can basically act as a co-redeemer? What does that say to Christ if you believe that? that you are relying on Mary as the co-redemptrix, that Christ is insufficient to save you. Doesn't say very good things. This is from the... This is a blog, actually. This is... Gosh. This guy is a Jesuit. He's a pretty common, uh, famous Jesuit. But I want to look at this little picture of him and... Oh my gosh, who is that? That's Mel Gibson. Father Fulco and Mel Gibson getting his honorary degree. Old languages, new friends. Isn't that funny? Academic life has led to many interesting projects for Father Fulco. I bet it has. In addition to his extensive travels, he has also received a request to work on the 2004 film The Passion of the Christ. After Yale professors turned the project down, the production crew found that Father Fulco was a local expert on Aramaic. Do you trust the interpretations of a Jesuit? I don't. Father Fulco was in Jerusalem when his phone lit up with a call from the statue from the States. Curious, he picked it up right away. Hey, Padre, it's Mel, came the rugged voice from the other side of the world. So they're just chums, him and the Jesuit priest. Isn't that interesting? And more and more we go. We're going to get into a lot of this stuff with the Passion of the Christ, but I want to, I want to set the stage first. Five reasons not to go see the Passion of the Christ finally some truth here. Okay, let's read this. The script for The Passion of the Christ was translated into Aramaic and Latin by Father William Fulco, which we just looked at, an old friend of Mel Gibson's. This was not done for reasons for making it more authentic. The language decisions in The Passion of the Christ were made for a theological reason. Quote, it is crucial to realize that the images and language at the heart of The Passion of the Christ flow directly out of Gibson's personal dedication to Catholicism. In one of its most traditional and mysterious forms, the 16th century Latin Mass. 
Quote, I don't go to any other services, the director told the Eternal Word Television Network. I go to the old Tridentine Rite. That's the way that I first saw it when I was a kid. So I think that informs one's understanding of how to transcend language. Now, initially, I didn't understand the Latin, but I understood the meaning and the message that they were doing. I understood that it was very fully, and it was very moving and emotional and efficacious, if I may say so. The goal of the movie is to shake modern audiences by brashly juxtaposing the sacrifice of the cross with the sacrifice of the altar, which is the same thing, said Gibson. There you go, transubstantiation. This is what it's all about. Catholic propaganda. This ancient union of symbols and sounds has never lost its hold on him. There is, he stressed, a lot of power in these dead languages, of course. Thus, the seemingly bizarre choice of Latin and Aramaic was actually part of the message. The script of the Passion of the Christ was specifically intended to link the crucifixion of Christ with the Roman Catholics believe is the re-sacrificing of Christ that occurs in the Mass every Sunday. Gibson's intent is to show us that the sacrifice of the cross and the sacrifice of the altar are the same thing. Are they the same thing? Is that what we should believe as Christians, that Jesus is sacrificed every Sunday? I don't think so. Protestant evangelicals have historically rejected the idea that Christ can be sacrificed again and declared it abominable, which it is. But yet, as you will soon see, evangelicals and Protestants alike, oh my gosh, it's such a beautiful movie, they are marveling after the beast, even though they should reject it. Isn't that something? This is from a website called The Cutting Edge. And they have some interesting things, but I'm going to read this. The whole Christian world is silently going through the dramatic change in religious thinking called a paradigm shift. Until this shift occurs, the Antichrist cannot arise. Once this shift does occur, discerning Christians can know that Antichrist is close. Such a paradigm shift is now underway, powered by four major factors running together simultaneously. They are the passion of the Christ, the purpose-driven church, which is basically the seeker-sensitive personal growth type church. It's very popular in the U.S. The Da Vinci Code, which propagates the Moravian bloodline, which is it's all false, without which Antichrist could not appear. And Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, which falsely assures people they can take the mark of the beast and still go to heaven. So there's, there's a lot of false signs and wonders that are happening. I didn't even talk about the Left Behind series, but again, all this stuff is just false signs and wonders that is shaping culture in a particular direction. This is another thing from uh, the, the cutting edge. It's a little more in-depth. We're going to talk about the one-eyed Jesus um, plus his depicted nakedness in the Passion of the Christ. So, okay, first and foremost, the one-eye symbolism. We're going to get into this a little bit deeper. It comes from a place in the Bible in Zechariah. We'll talk about the worthless shepherd. So the Passion of the Christ is always picturing Jesus throughout with, with one eye, which is very strange because if you recall from the dollar at the Anoet Coeptus where he approves of our undertaking, the left eye is the one that's being showed at the top of the pyramid. It's the left eye. It's not just an eye. It's the left eye. And that is the eye that Mel Gibson has with his icon pictures that he owns. It's the left eye, which is very strange. Also, you have basically this one-eyed picture of portrayal of Jesus throughout the Passion of the Christ. And this relates to the worthless shepherd in Zechariah 11, where God will raise up this worthless shepherd with blindness in his right eye, 
that will deceive the people. So it's an antichrist prophecy, type of prophecy. But he's got his left eye visible. So why is, how are all these things connected? That's, that's a really interesting. Is this talking about a potential false Christ that they want to bring into the world that they're hoping for? Let's see. In the movie, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he turns his head slightly to the side and the camera focuses in on exactly the area of his face that is depicted in Gibson's symbol for his icon productions. Isn't that interesting? Jesus' nose is to the lower left of the screen while his bloody eye is to the upper right. This camera shot lasted only a few seconds, but the sense is identical to his production company's symbol. Even in the scene in the tomb where Jesus is sitting on the foot of the crypt holding the collapsing burial cloths, the camera very carefully concentrates on only one side of the face so that the entire depiction in the tomb is still of a one-eyed Messiah. I caught the ending of this movie again just today so I could view this tomb scene to make sure that I had seen it correctly. Therefore, the question of, of the hour is this. Why the emphasis on the passion upon one eye? Good question. This movie strongly depicts Jesus as a Messiah with only one eye and with his eye left behind the, the undamaged one. Why? Let's find out why. Carefully consider this fact. The depiction was totally unnecessary to this film. Agreed. The Gospels do not record that Jesus left the tomb naked. Sister Anne Emmerich did not see in her visions that Jesus was naked as he left the tomb. Therefore, why would Gibson and his Jesuit scriptwriter concoct such an ending? Since Gibson, Gibson reportedly spent $50 million of his own money to make this film, and get it distributed, and since he is a proven professional screen actor, you know that he paid attention to every single detail, which is true, no matter how minute. You know that he knew this film was going to end on Jesus' bare bottom, so that must have been the plan. Well, there's some more. When I answered in the affirmative, Dr. Ramos said, David, go get your copy of my book, Masonic and Occult Symbols Illustrated. So what's in this book? Kathy told me to turn to page 205 on this book called Masonic and Occult Symbols Illustrated. She said, notice that the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, portrays the Antichrist as a one-eyed, left-eyed, naked Messiah riding a white horse. This is true. This is their symbol, the, the naked Messiah with the left eye riding a white horse, coming in and ushering a golden age for them. That's what they believe in. The Muslims believe that the Antichrist is to appear who will have one eye. That's true. That's the, uh, I forget the name that they have for the, the Maji. No, that's the, that's the good one. Something with a D. I forget the name. Anyway, the Muslims believe the Antichrist will have one eye as well. Um, but let's, let's talk about this a little bit. So Mel Gibson has this occult symbolism throughout his, throughout his movie with, with Jesus having one eye and basically the, the icon symbol being one eye, it's related to the left eye on the Illuminati pyramid. What's going on here? Like Obviously, they, this is intentional, very, very intentional. And if we look in Zechariah 11, which is where this prophecy comes from, it says this. This is verse 15 through 17. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. There it is, his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. So whether that's talking about the final 
antichrist power individual who's probably going to masquerade as a false Christ. Who knows? I think it probably is. But in either case, the occult people are making a statement that's based on this. The worthless shepherd, the one that's blinded in his right eye. All those movie stars that cover their eye and they do this little, their little photo shoots with one eye covered and it's usually the right or the left eye. These are statements of what side you're playing on. If it's the right eye, it's a certain side. If it's the left eye, it's another side. But usually it's the right eye that's blinded. And again, it's just paying homage to this idea of the one-eyed antichrist. The, the one eye of the pyramid is the left eye. So the question is, why does, you know, why does Mel Gibson have all this symbolism in his movie that's supposed to be about Jesus? Which is, is really interesting, I think. But let's let's take a few look at a few more before we jump into unpacking this movie and seeing why it's such a false sign of wonder. This is reactions to the passion of the Christ. Ecumenism. It's from an article on the passion of the Christ. The recommendations for this film are glowing and widespread. I have no doubt, quote, that the movie will be one of the greatest evangelical tools in modern day history. I think people will go to it and then flood into the churches seeking to know the deeper implications of this movie. Ed Young, pastor of Area Fellowship Church. This is a Protestant pastor. Wait a minute, they're going to flood the churches. Which churches, I wonder? If they are being told that the sacrifice of Christ is the same as the Mass, what church are they trying to, what church are they being pushed into? It's not Protestant churches. I believe the Passion of the Christ may well be one of the most powerful evangelical tools of the last 100 years, <laughs> really, because you have never seen the story of Jesus portrayed this vividly before. Greg Laurie, Harvest Crusade. This is a, another famous Protestant. All these people are. But look at how they're marveling after the beast. And you will see more and more how the Passion of the Christ is really just Catholic propaganda. It's designed to make you marvel after the beast and to want union of church and state. The Passion will stun audiences and create an incredible appetite for people to know more about Jesus. I urge Christians to invite their spiritually seeking friends to see this movie with them. Lee Strobel. There you go. He's a famous case for Christ. Isn't that funny? I'm not saying anything about Lee Strobel because I think maybe he's just deceived, just like I was. I mean, I I thought the Passion of the Christ, oh my gosh, I cried. Jesus, you know, being tortured and and pushed. I mean, yes, it's a very bloody film. But there is, look, you have to understand trauma-based mind control and what these people operate under. When there's this much trauma, it's perfect time to subliminally program certain messages. And these messages, which you'll soon see as we unpack this, are very antichrist. And that's what this is the point. Very, very subversive, satanic, false signs and wonders. And again, it's it wouldn't be a false sign and wonder if people didn't wonder after it, if people didn't marvel. Do you see the point? Of course it's a false sign and wonder because it's fooling people. That's the point. It has to be persuasive. The Passion is an awe-inspiring portrayal of the last hours of Jesus' life. It's an accurate account of Jesus' real sufferings for the sins of the whole world. This is not... This is not a film anyone should miss. Dr. Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, Hour of Power. Everyone should see this movie. It could be Hollywood's finest achievement to date. Who's controlled Hollywood? Remember? Tim LaHaye, Tim LaHaye Ministries. If they're critical of the film, they would be critical of the gospel. Archbishop John Foley, President, Pontifical Council of Social Communications, the Vatican. Of course, what does the Vatican say? Straight from the snake's mouth. 
If you're critical of the film, which I'm going to be, then you're critical of the gospel. There's no salvation outside the church. Do you see where this is going? And again, this is all very light stuff because we haven't gotten to the point where the church-state union is active. But imagine if it was active and you criticize the movie. If you criticize these false signs and wonders, how dare you criticize the movie? And if there will be public support, well, you're going to get executed or whatever else. You won't be able to buy or sell. This is from CBN. Should you take your teens to the passion as it is rated R? Editorial note from Rick Warren. Having seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ twice, (laughs) twice, mind you, twice, I can tell you that it is a cinematic masterpiece, and I would encourage you to use it as an outreach tool within your community. Rick Warren, who's also famous for a lot of other things that we won't get into in this episode, but of course, are we surprised? Are we really surprised? So, where do we go from this? Well, the movie has drastic impact on both sides of the aisles. It's uniting liberals, conservatives, Protestants with the Vatican, all under one seeming, seemingly good ideal, right? It seems good. But again, the Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but it is a way that leads to death. And so we can't lean on our own understanding. We have to test the spirits. There's more than meets the eye with this movie. At the very least, everything that I've shared with you so far, the fact that there's a staunch, fanatical Catholic who believes very Catholic things who made this movie, the fact that there's some occult symbolism, at least on the very surface analysis of the movie, that you can tell that there's a lot of occult symbolism that matches other occult writings and beliefs, the fact that everybody's marveling after it and being unified by it, and it's leading to ecumenism, that we can, oh my gosh, we should all share in the same experience because we all love Jesus, right? Well, yeah. Jesus is the center, but you can't unite around Jesus because transubstantiation and rejecting transubstantiation are two vastly different realities, two vastly different doctrines. But if you can unite around fleshly things and experiences and mystical experiences and emotional things, that's much easier to do. Do you see where this is going? At the very least, it should raise your eyebrow as to why is this movie so successful? Remember, anything that's worldly is not friends with God. Now, God will use things for the good, Of course, for the genuine believers he's chosen to save, he will use things for the good and and help to convict us and and remind us of Christ's suffering through movies like this. But ultimately, there is something else going on with this movie, and that's what I intend to expose to you today, which is a false sign and wonder. So we're going to look at something called The Poison in the Passion of the Christ, a presentation by Terry Watkins. I'm not going to go through all of it because it's very long. You can even find it on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff that, but he puts together a lot of great information and we're going to go through it. We're going to go through it and this will be the final thing to go through, but hopefully it's solidified for you so far that this is an image being created by the beast, the second beast, and it is helping people to embrace Catholicism. So a few years ago, as Mel Gibson was rediscovering and renewing his Catholic faith, He purchased a library of hundreds of books from a closed nunnery. Mel claims as he was reaching for a book on the library shelf, a supernatural intervention caused another book to miraculously drop into his hands. That miracle book, not the Bible, not the Gospels, is the inspiration of the Passion. 
The book was called The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the meditations of Anne Catherine Emmerich. We mentioned her previously. Gibson claims like magic, this book opened up a new world. Pay attention to all of this. Amazing images, he said. This, she supplied me with stuff I never would have even thought of. So who is Anne Catherine Emmerich, the mysterious scriptwriter of the Passion? Anne, uh, Anne Catherine Emmerich was a famous mystic Catholic nun who possessed some very unusual abilities. Anne was born on the Feast of the Virgin Mary's own nativity, September 8th, 1774, in Westphalia, Germany. She became a nun of the Augustinian order at Dolmen. Emmerich began having supernatural visions very early in her life. By the age of four, she prayed for three hours daily while being physically visited by her guardian angel. That's interesting. Even at the early age before around her, described a mysterious power that emanated from her. So that's that should start raising some eyebrows. Emmerich was found frequently practicing the occult art of levitation. Many times when she entered a room, she was clearly seen levitating above the ground. She also practiced the occult art of astral projection, claiming to bilocate to various places. Astral projection is the physical ability when the soul leaves the physical body and travels beyond space and time. During her mystic astral projection, she claims to have watched the actual execution of King Louis the Fifteenth uh, and visited Sixteenth, sorry, and visited Marie Antoinette, Queen of France, in prison. Sometimes the astral projection trips actually took her into purgatory to view the tortured souls in purgatory. Of course, the Bible does not teach purgatory. Emmerich experienced about every satanic, supernatural, and occult practice known. So she's very deceived. Emmerich also bore the actual physical wounds of Jesus Christ, called the Catholic mystic stigmata, where the actual wounds of Christ supernaturally appeared on the hands, feet, and head. According to super supposedly verified medical reports, her supernatural stigmata wounds were half an inch in size and found in her hands, feet, side, head, and she bled profusely, especially on Fridays, which was when Christ was crucified. At times, the blood flowed so heavy from the supernatural stigmata wounds, the blood would completely soak the bandages and freely flow on the ground. According to various sources, this was all verified by medical doctors. One physician who examined Emmerich said, there can be no question of imposture in this case. The wounds speak for themselves, at least to a man of science. To ascribe them to natural causes such as imagination, induction, analogy, or similar causes is simply impossible. According to her biographers, the last 12 years of Anne's life, she ate no food except the bread and wine of the Holy Eucharist. In other words, she supposedly lived for, 12, for over 12 years on nothing but the Catholic Eucharist or Mass. To put it bluntly, Anne Catherine Emmerich was a very spiritually disturbed lady. And she was indeed, right? And so let's take a quick break. This person that basically wrote this book, The Dolores Passion, and you'll see so many things wrong with this book. This is the book. This person who was obviously possessed and very deceived, very traumatized. This is the person that Mel Gibson was just so infatuated with as the one who basically inspired the Passion of the Christ. That alone... And I'm going to cover so many other things, but that alone should make you raise an eyebrow. If anything that we haven't covered so far hasn't. But let's move on. Here are a few quotes by Anne Catherine Emmerich. The church is the only one, the Roman Catholic Church. And if there were left upon earth but one Catholic, he would be the one universal church, the Catholic Church, the Church of Jesus Christ against which the gates of hell 
should never prevail. So she was definitely a fanatic. Then I had the sweet assurance that Mary is the church, the church our mother God, our father, and Jesus our brother. Nice little pagan ideas there about mother, father, son. I've had a great vision on the mystery of the Holy Mass, and I have seen that whatever good has existed since creation is owing to it. So the Mass, where Jesus is crucified, apparently, in their mind, they've sacrificed, every Sunday, every week, sacrificed and eaten, literally, in their mind. According to Catherine Emmerich, she thinks that this is attributed to all the good in the universe, which is just... I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that kind of blasphemy, but much of the passion is clearly scripted from Emmerich Dolores' passion. Of course, we're going to look at that. So let's look at how those things are scripted. More examples of Emmerich Dolores' passion in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. So you can look all this stuff up and see all these different examples. I'm just going to highlight over a few of them. Satan torments Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This never happened. Mary wakes up, sensing Jesus' arrest. This, again, never happened. And there's a reason why these things are being portrayed, especially with Mary. Soldiers throw Jesus off a bridge. That never happened. But these are all from Dolores' passion, right? So she made all this stuff up, or she was basically deceived into writing it down, which is probably more accurate. And, of course, the movie copied it. After thrice denying Jesus, Peter runs to Mary, weeping and calling her mother. This never happened in the Gospels. There's no such thing, but this is the Dolores passion. Herod calls Jesus a fool and commands that Jesus be given a fool's homage. Didn't happen in the Gospel. None of this stuff happened in the Gospels. It's all from this Dolores passion, which was written by somebody who's possessed. Pilate's wife hands white linens to Mary, who uses these to wipe Jesus' blood from the floor. Never happened. Jesus falls multiple times while carrying the cross. These correspond to the 3rd, 7th, and ninth stations of the cross of the Catholics. And we'll get into that too, but this, this stuff never happened in the Gospels, guys. It's This is stations of the cross. It's Catholic propaganda. Mary meets Jesus while on the way to Golgotha, the 4th station of the cross. That never happened in the Bible, in the Gospels. The scene in which Simon of Cyrene is pressed into service is very similar to that written by Emmerich. One of Simon's children is present. He is initially reluctant, exhibiting great disdain towards Jesus. Simon soon after experiences a change of heart. All these things were never written in the Gospels, okay? Simon's story was just very matter-of-fact and simple. Veronica wipes Jesus' face, this, which is the sixth station of the cross. The cloth with the bloody face imprinted in it is now a relic, which is the Shroud of Turin, which again, it's at the Catholic Church. you got to remember all this pagan stuff with relics and shrines and temples and pilgrimages. This is all designed to marvel after the beast. That never happened. The Veronica wiping Jesus' face and, get, face and getting an impression, that never happened in the Gospels. Feels like it happened, doesn't it? That's because they implanted false memories. The scene of Jesus and, and Simon is very similar to that written by Emmerich. Simon threatens to stop helping if the soldiers continue in their cruelty, saying that he will do so even if the soldiers kill him. Simon then places Jesus' arm across his shoulders, supporting him. That's not in the Bible. Jesus did not experience that from Simon. Jesus' body is lowered into Mary's arms, and the camera focuses on Mary in the Pieta pose before panning out and fading out. This suggests Mary as the co-redeemer. Now, again, this is, (laughs) again, so much, oh my gosh, where do you begin with this stuff? There's the Pieta, the statue, 
I forget who Scott, I think Michelangelo sculpted it, but it's of Mary holding Jesus. It's a famous statue. And the end of this movie is the pose of that statue, which again, it's all programming that Mary's there too. Mary's, Mary's really the one holding Jesus up. See where this is going? Mary, all these little moments where, where they weren't in the Gospels, but, you know, Peter runs to Mary. Mary's there with Jesus saying, oh, no, it's okay. It's, like, these are subliminal things to make you accept the doctrine of Mary being a co-redemptrix and venerating Mary as a result and giving her worship, which, again, if you remember from the Fatima episode, we talked about the false signs and wonders of the Fatima and what she said, she, in quotation marks, it was all antichrist. It was all contrary to the gospel. And if you remember Helena Blavatsky, the Luciferian grandmother of the New Age, what does she believe the celestial virgin was? Mary was Lucifer. Of course, not real Mary, but in the occult, in their in their idolatrous worship of Mary and veneration of the divine feminine. This is this is all pagan stuff, man. And it's subtly being programmed to you through these emotional scenes that you get so wrapped up up. Just like that quote we looked at, where your brain goes into this state where it cannot judge rightly. It is by design. You think they don't know that? The Jesuits know that. They authored and they perfected this whole learning against learning through Hollywood, through all these different things. But let's keep going. We're almost here there. An article in Christianity Today titled The Passion of Mel Gibson had the curious subtitle, Why Evangelicals Are Cheering a Movie with Profoundly Catholic Sensibilities. This evangelical enthusiasm for the Passion of the Christ may seem a little surprising in that the movie was shaped from start to finish by a devout Roman Catholic, thank you, and by an almost medieval Catholic vision, which is Anne Catherine Emmerich, which was several hundred years ago, which is true. A review of the Passion by TV Guide also recognizes Emmerich's influence. Like all filmmakers inspired by the Bible, Gibson picks and chooses his lore, guided in part by the lurid visions of the 18th century stigmatic nun and Catherine Emmerich. So this was common knowledge. It's not like we're making this up. James Dobson's uh, teen guide, plugged in, gives a glowing approval for the passion while readily acknowledging Emmerich's guidance. The script is based primarily on New Testament accounts of the gospel, which, okay, but also draws upon Catholic works, including St. Mary of Agrida's the Mystical City of God, and the Diaries of St. Anne Catherine Emmerich, as collected in the book, The Dolores Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Get this, according to the one report, Emmerich's Satan-inspired Dolores Passion sold less than 3,000 copies in all of 2002. But since Gibson's Passion, in just one month, it has sold over 17,000 copies. So, people are wandering and marveling after the beast. Do you see what's going on here? This is a false gospel. They're bringing life to the image of the beast. They're bringing life, meaning through actors, through movies. They're bringing life to moving images. It used to be icons and statues. Now it's movies and actors, real life idols that you can worship and that, that steer you slowly to the beast and accepting the beast's values. And of course, they put in dialectics for good measure. Oh, the Jews, they want to kick Mel Gibson out of Hollywood because he's doing such a good job for Jesus. Do you, see, do you see the manipulation? Hollywood was controlled by the Jesuits, and they switched gears because that's what the art of war says. The, the, the general does his thing the way he wants to. Sometimes he's going to go with the sovereign. Sometimes he's going to go against the sovereign. 
he was with the sovereign at first, and then he went against him. And then it seemed like the Jews were against the Catholics. But this is this is just dialectics, again, to bring you back to, ultimately, the sovereign. So you have to have discernment. Now, again, here's a couple things that just did not happen at all in the gospel. The following are obvious incidents of the passion that are not in the word of God. Any Christian who has even slightly read their Bible should immediately recognize the perversion of the gospel story of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a different gospel. Satan is shown talking to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Never happened. All these things never happened that I'm going to read. Satan is a beautiful woman. Jesus stomps a snake in the garden that slithers from Satan's cloak, which is just all kinds of imagery. In the Garden of Gethsemane, a guard punches, kicks, and slaps Jesus. After Judas betrays Jesus, Judas is attacked by children whose faces morph into demons. The demonic children bite Judas. After viewing Jesus' bloody body, Pilate asks the Sanhedrin if they always beat prisoners prior to trial. Pilate discusses with his wife his relationship with Tiberius Caesar, emphasizing orders Caesar gave him to avoid uprising Judea. No such discussion is found in the Gospels. Jesus falls three times while carrying the cross. That is not in the gospel. It's in the stations of the cross. Once when Jesus falls, Mary runs to him and says, See, mother, I make all things new. This is not in the gospels. This is a false gospel. Mary later asks Jesus, When, how, where will you choose to be delivered from this? Not in the gospel. Pilate's wife brings linens to Jesus' mother and Mary Magdalene so that they can wipe up his blood. A woman woman who is... The Catholic St. Veronica gives Jesus a cloth to wipe his face. Jesus' cross levitates. I mean, there's there's just so much in this, and we'll, we'll move on to the source now. There, there is no doubt underlying foundation of the Passion of the Christ is the 14 stations of the cross. <laughs> They're all there. All the stations of the cross are there. So you have you know various things that are in the Gospels, but there are several of them that are not. Right, so again, it's it's a it's an invented thing. Jesus falls for the first time, not in the Bible. Jesus meets his mother, not in the Bible. Veronica wipes Jesus' face, not in the Bible. Jesus falls a second time, not in the Bible. Jesus falls a third time, not in the Bible. These things are not in the Bible, and yet all of these stations of the cross are in the movie. The movie is a visualization of the stations of the cross. Here's a quote. Finally, though, when we get to the point where Christ is arrested by the temple guard, brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and scourged at the stake, it suddenly becomes absolutely clear what Gibson is doing. He's illustrating the 14 stations of the cross. This is a review, movie review in the magazine, plugged in. And so it's obvious this is just a movie about the stations of the cross. The Catholic news organization Zenit writes that the Passion is actually the Catholic Mass secretly, via Latin, performed. The reason for the Latin language to perform the Mass is the following, quote, This film for its author is a Mass. Let it be then in an obscure language, i.e. Latin, as it was for many centuries. If the mind does not understand it, so much the better. Gosh, that's interesting. That's from Zenit, which is a Catholic news organization. Syndicated religious journalist Terry Mattingly details Gibson's hidden purpose for the Passion is the Holy Eucharist. It is crucial to realize that the images and language of the heart of the Passion of the Christ flow directly out of Gibson's personal dedication to Catholicism in one of its most traditional and mysterious forms, the 16th century Latin Mass. We read this quote in that previous article, but still good to remember it. To emphasize and connect the Catholic's false teaching that the Holy Eucharist or the Lord's Supper changes into the actual blood and body of Jesus Christ, called transubstantiation, 
In the Passion as Jesus is on the cross, Mel flashes in the scenes from the Lord's Supper. One Catholic reviewer picked up on the subtle Catholic propaganda. The juxtaposition, this is a quote now, of the wounded and bleeding body of Christ on the cross with the scenes of the Last Supper completely or compellingly underscores how the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of Christ. You see, this is all propaganda. It's giving you trauma. It's giving you trauma and something to jolt your nervous system where you don't think logically anymore and you can't test the spirits. And then it introduces these gentle scenes of, oh my gosh, Jesus at the Last Supper. And and it subliminally programs you to associate like, yeah, that like, that is the body and blood of Jesus. And you start to believe that. If you don't have solid biblical discernment, very easy to, to accept the teaching of the cat. And we'll look at, again, this episode is more about the cultural stuff. In the next episode, I'll talk about how the Protestants are all acknowledging the Mother Church. I mean, you have so many that are now starting to see, oh, well, maybe maybe transubstantiation is a good thing. Like, maybe that is. We can have a higher connection to Jesus. I mean, they're being deceived in, in a crazy way. And this is part of it. False signs and wonders like the Passion of the Christ are part of it. Let's move on. Not surprisingly, Gibson and Kavizolt, the actor who played Jesus, received mass and communion every morning to prepare for the filming. So they they believed that sacrificing Jesus and literally eating his flesh as a ritual is what's guiding them to do this movie. It's not the Holy Spirit guiding them, I'll tell you that. Mel Gibson proudly calls Mary a tremendous co-redemptrix and mediatrix. And there's a source for these quotes. All these quotes are sourced. A bizarre incident occurred in one of the theaters showing The Passion. Strangely, the number 666 began appearing on the movie tickets. The theater was in Rome, Georgia. Now, of course, we know who sits in Rome. But The Passion was filmed in Rome, Italy. So who is in Rome? We know that. That's the mystery Babylon who sits on seven hills. Seven hills is Rome. A very interesting number with the 666. Now, again, I this is more of a tidbit. It's nothing that I put my weight into. But nonetheless, you remember even from the Vicar of Christ and all these different titles that we looked at with numerology. Again, highly, I'm not into numerology. I just think it was interesting to see all these correlations. And again, just another interesting tidbit. So I don't put too much weight in these things, but they just add, they just add to the overall evidence, honestly, because this stuff is just so obvious once you put your mind into it and don't buy into the emotional hype. One reviewer of The Passion thoughtfully acknowledges once the images and subscripts are embedded in the mind by the relentless musical theme, they will be unable to read scripture or hear preaching without mentally recalling of the false images or of a false Christ portrayed by Hollywood actors. And that's exactly what it's about. This is about inserting through emotion and, and creating an experience that is so emotional that you attach yourself to their false gospel. And when you read or listen or you know, you're studying, that gospel is on your mind. And that's what it's about. It's very subversive, extremely. That's why I said I'm not going to watch it anymore. I watched it. I was ignorant of all these things. And again, God will use it for the good. But be discerning. The passion will penetrate the mind, heart, and soul in ways that can only be memorable and positive. Donald Hodel, president and CEO of Focus on the Family. All these quotes. I mean, we did so many. Billy Graham makes a startling statement concerning the imaginations from the past. This is Billy Graham now. I feel as if I actually have been there. I was moved to tears. No one who views this film's compelling imagery will ever be the same. You're right. Every time I preach or speak about the cross, 
The things I saw on the screen will be on my heart and mind. Billy Graham. So remember that when Jesus was on the cross in this movie, also what happened? Well, they flashed back to the Last Supper and it was all about programming transubstantiation and the Eucharist. So Billy Graham is basically saying, yeah, all that stuff is going to be on my mind. Interesting, isn't it? Oh, there's so much more, but we're just, we're almost done here. We got a few, a little bit, a few things. The sensational. Now, these are just different quotes. It has been, we've read a few before, but just, again, look at how people are marveling after the beast. It's been nearly three weeks since I saw through the rough cut of the passion. It is still impacting my life. I can't stop thinking about it, nor can I stop talking about it. Dale Tackett, Executive Vice President, Focus on the Family. This is from Paul, Paul Crouch from Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN. This will do for Jesus movies what Saving Private Ryan did for war pictures. Is there a friendship between God and the world? I don't think so. Every Christian must go see this movie and hold Mr. Gibson up in prayer. He's going to take a lot of heat for his project. Again, there's the dialectic. The, the Catholic who's fanatical about you taking the Eucharist and the Catholic Church is the only way to salvation is getting heat from the big, bad, dark, deep state, communist, Jewish, mafia, whatever in Hollywood. This is all just a dialectic to make you go after the beast. Continuing on. But if we'll support him, this movie could have a profound spiritual effect on millions of people. Yes, it will have an effect on millions of people. Absolutely. Not the effect that you think, though. Thank you for allowing our congregation to preview the movie trailer of The Passion. In just four short minutes, the images and the authenticity left our members spellbound. Huh. That's an interesting word choice. Something went right to the heart of those who watched the trailer. Max Lucado, who is a pastor and a best-selling author. Now, look, I want to draw your attention to some other important things, which is, can you trust the people who are actually acting? Remember the gay pride flag, a great gay pride flag on the chosen set that was leaked, quote unquote. I mean, they did it intentionally, but look at this. The one specific group of people the Lord Jesus explicitly warns to welcome and include are not welcome, i.e. the children. Now, how did the evangelical caravan miss this one in supporting the movie? Probably how they missed the other major problems with the passion. They left their Bible at the movie theater. This is in verse 13 through 14 of Matthew 9. Then when they were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer the little children and forbid them not to come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. So Christ was all about having the children and praying for the children, being with the children. Children were welcomed to Christ. We should be like little children in receiving the gospel and believe, right? Children believe. They're not cynical. But The Passion is not a movie for children. It's In fact, it's very much the opposite. It's a rated R movie, and it's extremely graphic. Let's see, let's see who's also starring in The Passion. Let's, the Sleaze. This is a part of the presentation. It's one of the chapters. But Monica Bellucci, the actress who plays Mary Magdalene in The Passion, posed for the 2001 GQ Italia Totally Nude calendar. Okay? The French film Irreversible, which Monica... Bellucci, a.k.a. Mary Magdalene, plays a leading role in, features total male and female nudity with violent and filthy perverted sex scenes, including homosexual S&M acts. Scoop News Agency says, the film delivers a stomach-churning opening punch in punch set in Rectum, a sadomasochist gay club. 
Monica performs in a 10-minute perverted sex graphic and violent sodomy rape scene. According to the Scoop News Agency, the movie Irreversible premiered at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Irreversible proves so shocking that 250 people walked out. This is in Cannes, which is like super liberal. Some needing medical attention. Fire wardens had to administer oxygen to 20 people at the Cannes Film Festival who fainted during the film, which includes a 10-minute depiction of sodomy of Monica Bellucci and also contains graphic scenes of rape and murder. So, great movie there. Movie critic Matthews adds this frightening professional opinion of Monica. <clears throat> Monica's irreversible. France, where mainstream filmmakers have been taking sexually and s- sexuality and sexual violence to unprecedented extremes in recent years, the elevated shock quotient of irreversible is nearly a demonic achievement. This is a famed movie critic that talked about this movie. Monica Bellucci of The Passion calmly says of the filthy and vile irreversible, this quote, this is a film that people love or they hate, but it's good to have these kinds of extremes. Really? This is what this person believes and she's playing Mary Magdalene? Isn't that interesting how they recruit these people for their satanic agenda? Searching Google with Monica Bellucci and porn will return a whopping 44,000 hits of extreme graphic vile and filth. Don't do that, but just trust that it, it exists. Rosita Salanto, Celentano, who plays Satan, is not exactly your cute little girl next door. Google search with Rosita Celentano will pop up over 6,000 pages of porn garbage. Mar- Maya, so she was a porn star too. Maya Morgenstern, who plays the Virgin Mary in The Passion, is not exactly pure either. She starred in the movie The Whitman Boys. It is a bizarre death film which contains prostitution, animal sacrifices, violence, and nudity. One review describes it as two brothers become obsessed with death after the death of their father. They investigate the cemetery, dissect small animals, and then meet a young prostitute who becomes an important presence in their lives. I mean, this is, these are all actors in The Passion. Claudia Girini, who plays the pilot's wife in The Passion, is also very popular on the internet. Hall of Scum. A Google search on Claudia Girini and porn will infect your computer and mind with over 6,000 hits of depraved vile. So, all these people who've <laughs> playing these characters in Passion have very questionable paths, and especially you see with Monica Bellucci, she doesn't regret it. So the question is, is this the right person to be playing in a movie about Jesus? Now let's look at Jim Caviezel. Caviezel claims that he got a sign, quote-unquote, six months before he even auditioned for the role of Christ when a complete stranger just came up to him and said, you'll be playing Jesus. Caviezel has probably noted that his initials are J.C., and he is 33, the same age Jesus Christ was when he was crucified. Caviezel also claims he was actually had fans bow down before him in worship. Interesting. Another Jesus is the title of this. Caviezel makes this incredible admission interview with the 700 Club. Even though I was playing Christ, many times I felt like Satan. I had obscenities wanting to come out of me. That's really strange. Caviezel says later in the same 700 Club interview, I felt like a great presence came within me at times when we were filming. Interestingly, Caviezel also starred in the movie Ride with the Devil. At one point, Gibson instructed the two actors inflicting the beating to hurl their lashes overhand as if throwing a baseball. Caviezel took a blow to his back after one of the actors aimed poorly. It just extended over the, over the board and hit me with such a velocity that I couldn't breathe, Caviezel said. It's like getting the wind knocked out of you. The stinging is so horrific that you can get that you can't get air. 
I turned around and looked at the guy, and I tell you, I may be playing Jesus, but I felt like Satan at that moment. I turned to him. A couple of expletives came out of my mouth. This is the second time Caviezel has said openly that he felt like Satan, quote. So, very just weird, you know, again, they're getting, um, you know, I think this is done over here. Okay. They're getting very weird guidance from spiritual forces. Obviously, these people are not guided by the Holy Spirit. They're getting mass every day and believing that they're eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They're, they're believing they're sacrificing Jesus in one of those masses every day to, to, to do this right. We got to do it justice. Mel Gibson's being guided by a, an 18th century nun who is obviously possessed. These people are all have questionable paths and they don't regret it, like Monica Bellucci, who have just really, really questionable paths and, and they seem to be fine with it. And so put it all together at best, at the very best. This movie, The Passion of the Christ, is an unbiblical movie. It's not somebody that some place that you should go to for a, a depiction of the gospels. It takes liberties and adds all kinds of blasphemous Catholic programming. That's at best. That is the best case scenario. We can just say, okay, maybe Mel Gibson is just being deceived and all the people along with him. At worst, at worst, it's an occult production designed to usher in the Antichrist to unite the world back to the beast and to help build this image of the beast where people are marveling after all these actors and, oh my gosh, there's a Jesus and he's, you know, the one-eyed Jesus. And to them, they're summoning, remember, when they're doing these things, they tell you beforehand and then they bring it into existence. This is what they believe. So they're creating the false Christ in the Passion of the Christ, the one-eyed Messiah, the worthless shepherd. And they're getting people to marvel after and that is announcing and helping to set the stage to bring in the false Christ. I've talked about this several times. The futurist eschatology that is being played out right now with the third temple and all these dialectics and the one world system that's coming, it is all to probably usher in a false Christ. If that happens, so many people are going to be deceived. You know, these actors have a questionable past. They have a questionable mentality. They're being guided by a false spirit. And they're being guided to be shepherds of this one world system. The Passion of the Christ was a massively impactful movie that are uniting so many people, but did you unite people under doctrine? Or is it uniting people under an emotional experience? Again, it's about the flesh. It's not about the truth. Because transubstantiation is satanic. It is absolutely satanic. It rejects the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, it rejects the atonement. You feel like you need to sacrifice Christ all the time to be atoning for your sins, and you need to take his blood and body physically, that, that the priests have the power to make something inanimate into God. I mean, that's just, it is, there's nothing more blasphemous. I can't imagine anything really than transubstantiation. But imagine now, if this becomes part of the mark of the beast, and we've come into that church-state union, people think it's a good thing, and you reject it. What do these people believe? They believe there's no salvation for you. And so you become a heretic and history repeats itself as it has for thousands of years. So we know that Mel Gibson is a fanatical fundamentalist Catholic who believes all these things, that Mary's a co-redemptrix, that there's no salvation outside the church. There's a lot of occult symbolism, like the naked Messiah. Like, why, why do that? At the end of the movie, Christ is shown naked and he's always got, he always has one eye. 
And so it's just all these subtle programming things that are very questionable. I know Mel Gibson at the time of this video is creating his second movie, The Resurrection. Isn't that interesting how the timing of that is also being tied with all these political things of being shifting to the right and getting closer and closer to a Christian nationalist system and now the Resurrection movie is going to happen. Isn't all that... I'm really fascinated to see this movie. I, I will watch it once just for the sake of seeing the program because now I'm awake to it and I hope you are too. But look, all of these things that are coming out of the the United States, they are things that look like a lamb, they speak like a dragon. Is the lamb, which is the second beast, the United States, is it building an image to the beast through this shaping of culture and shaping of ideology of bringing people back into worshiping and paying homage to the first beast? Yes, the answer is absolutely yes. This culture, this system that is happening, it is paying homage slowly and slowly to the beast. And one day there will be no more division between church and state. I tell you the truth, because right now, the the line is already blurry. The religion and politics have been unified for a while, and it's coming more and more out in the open. And things like the Passion of the Christ and many of those other things we mentioned, the Chosen, the Hallow app, all these things are unifying people more and more until it's ubiquitous. It's throughout culture. It's just there. And then suddenly it's just normal for there to be a religion and, and union between religion and state. So what is the future? Well, the future is the woman riding the beast, and we're moving in that direction. Today we've talked about the political cultural aspects. I showed you a lot of politics, that the religion and, and political side of things aren't as separate as people think they are. Last episode we talked about how this country was founded on the United States, was not founded as a Christian nation. It was founded by Luciferians who believed in all kinds of occult things. And next episode, we're going to look at how the spiritual aspects, today we looked at cultural, political, next episode is going to be spiritual aspects, which is going to be things like how Protestants are wanting to get back with the church, how things are just getting very blurry between Protestantism and Catholicism. You have so many, so many things to look at. You really do. I mean, it's just, these are the types of things that you need to spend your time on. And rather than watching for Israel or trying to predict the rapture or all these things that people are doing these days on YouTube and TikTok, because they're leading you astray. These things are are false eschatologies. And so anyway, this has been a longer episode. I know these episodes are obviously on the longer end, but hopefully they're a resource to you and they've helped you woken up so that you are not deceived. These things are so powerful at deception. I mean, look, the the devil is called the master or the father of lies. He's father of lies for a reason, because lies that the devil gives are very convincing. Unless you have, of course, the sword of truth, the shield of faith, the armor of God, the true armor of God, which is through the Holy Spirit and through reading your Bible and being certain of what it says. Because if you know the Bible, then you look at these things and you say, okay, this is, this is nonsense. At the very least, you don't have to know about secret societies or occult things. You should know at the very least that these things are very unbiblical. And then, of course, knowing history helps you even more to discern these things because this is part of the plan to bring people back into the Mother Church. And it will happen. We are at the tail end of this plan unfolding, and we will see it in our generation, I believe. So either way, remember that the ending to this story is a good one. The real Jesus is coming back. The real Jesus will destroy this system. 
And if there's a false Christ, he'll destroy him too. So ultimately we have nothing to fear. But do not be deceived is the lesson of today. Do not be deceived by false signs and wonders. The image of the beast is being constructed all around you. And whether you live in the United States like me, and you get the pleasure of experiencing that firsthand when it goes live, or you live somewhere around the world, you will be integrated into this system because the system that is built here will move its way outward and the kings of the earth will give their power to the woman riding the beast. And so that is the future. But the hope that we have is that that's not going to last very long. Every time they have tried to make a world-world union, Christ has come and destroyed it. So Maranatha and God bless. I hope you stay healthy. I hope you stay sharp. And no matter what happens, remember, we have our hope and faith in Jesus and he will return very soon. God bless. We'll see you soon.